October 1982. This is the Player Muscle Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. This is episode 27, and in a feat of optimism, I planned out all the way to episode 39, which is through October 1983, because I stumbled across a magazine that I think I would be interested in covering. It turns out it's a sort of an offshoot of creative computing. I really wasn't aware of it back then, or now, at least until just now. But it's called Creative Computing Video and Arcade Games. And it looks like there were only two issues. There was a Spring 83 and a Fall 83 issue. And I decided I better, like, take note of them now. And so I created a bunch of, like, empty note documents for all the episodes between now and episode 39. And so I'll cover the second of these in episode 39. So that was kind of my stopping point. I thought about adding them to my little magazine grid, but they're just two. And so I didn't feel like going to all that trouble, actually. So sorry about that. Oh, and I forgot to mention I have a co-host today. It's my cat who I have tried numerous times to kick out of my recording studio, but has steadfastly returned and is now alternating between sitting down in my seat and jumping off the seat and attacking the clothes. I should mention my recording studio is actually my closet. And that's him hanging from a garment bag. I'll update you with any opinions he has on the game we're going to cover today, but for now, let's get into the magazines. Only seven magazines to cover this month, and one of them is Byte, so that'll be a small coverage. From this point forward, we're always going to have at least one of Antic or Analog in every episode of the podcast. And of course, we always have Compute and Creative Computing. So yeah, we're always going to have three of my four favorites in every episode from now on. This month, it is Antic. So let's start there. This is the October-November issue. It's volume four, number one, two bucks fifty on the cover price. It says Antic in its usual font, the Atari resource. The cover is really just one large picture painting, I guess, of kind of a musical staff kind of foreshortened and fading off into the distance. And if I knew my musical staff, there's a treble clef, perhaps? And there's like four quarter notes with little red and white flags on the tops instead of the normal black quarter note tops. And there's two sort of yellow and blue Cylon sort of looking ships, you know, old 80s style Cylons, sort of the curved wing things, shooting at a couple of quarter notes. And there's a couple Atari logo spaceships you know, the Fujis in the background was like swooping in looking to maybe attack. The background is kind of a star nebula. It's mostly black, but there's some kind of blue and pink sort of stellar clouds. And the only text on the on the cover really says sound and music. Although there's a sash up top that says bonus game, but doesn't mention what that bonus game is. There's a signature on the painting, but I can't read it. In the masthead, it says there's a contributing illustrator, John Musgrove, but it doesn't look like what the signature is to me. Oh, and here it looks like there there's an art director named Marnie Tapscott, and that's what it looks like the signature is, because it looks like I can see the like the double T's at the end. Yeah, I bet that's what it is, Marnie Tapscott. But it's not credited that I can see it at any point. The inside front cover is an ad from Atari. The uh, Ataris are speaking your language, where it lists a bunch of different languages. I think I mentioned this in the last episode. It's the same ad from a different magazine, but where they mention Microsoft Basic, but not actually say that it's only available for desk. The table of contents shows a bunch of stuff that will probably all at least go over. Obviously, a lot of stuff on sounds. Something that uh, looks interesting is an article by Ed Rotberg called Zounds, an Introduction to Music Synthesis. I'm no musician, but one of the things that I want to do with the Atari is to learn how to make like tunes and stuff. I understand the engine in Jumpman. You know, I've disassembled Jumpman and Case Abbott's and I've worked a bunch. And so that's kind of the music engine I want to work with because he and I are wanting to, you know, obviously extend Jumpman and make more levels, but that would also include creating new sound effects. So this might be a magazine for me to return to at some point. Another interesting article is A Sound Introduction by James Caporell. In the editorial section by James Caporell, it says that the paid circulation suggests that Antic is the most widely read independent magazine for the Atari owner. And he says, we thank you for your confidence and support. And just for a cat play-by-play, he's now sniffing my microphone. 
Meanwhile, the editorial continues saying some possibly factual information. It says Atari is the number one selling home computer and sales, so no sign of slacking. And he says, I predict there will be half a million Atari computers in the homes by the end of 1983, which may have been about right. The cat is now eating the microphone cable. But I don't know where he's getting this data, so I'm not sure if that's a correct stat or not. It's unsourced. The article, A Sound Introduction by Jim Caparol, same guy, is basically, uh, it takes through some basic statements and how the sound statement works. And there's several examples in basic about some repeating samples, you know, with for loops and stuff to change the pitch or to make varying sounds. Like one is a, a siren for the US and there he has another one with the European version of a siren. And the next page is an article by Dave Plotkin, some sound advice it's called. And again, it's in basic using the sound command and talks a little bit more about the distortion and what it does. So there's really command, there's really three commands in the sound statement. There's the tone, the distortion, and the volume. And then once you set one of those, it produces a constant sort of sound, whether it's tonal or atonal kind of depends on the distortion. But then you're left to like program control to make sound effects, you know, like pitch going up or the tone changing is up to you. The only thing the Atari can do is is produce single tones uh, without any other, you know, user interaction. The next article is called Atari Institute Teaches Music by Herb Moore. And this is kind of a summary of a, looks like a seminar. It was titled Computer Applications to Music, and it was sponsored by something called the Atari Institute for Educational Action Research, which is something I've never heard of before. It says the seminar was for, it said, mostly music educators at the high school and college level. It was a credit class through the University of Delaware, taught by, it seems to be primarily a, a Dr. Fred T. Hofstetter. It said each attendee was provided an Atari 800 with a disk drive and a monitor, and there was several printers available. It said, or they could connect to the Play-Doh system at the University of Delaware. Apparently, it was try to, trying to teach people how to use the Atari computer to generate music in order to use them in their classroom, their music classrooms. So I've never heard of this organization within Atari, but Ted Kahn is reported to be the executive director of the Atari Institute. And all right, I have to back that up. Apparently, I have heard of Ted Kahn because Kay Savitz did an interview with him back in 2016. I'm sure I must have listened to the interview because I've listened to all the Antic interviews. So there you go. I will include a link to Kay's interview in the show notes. There's a little half-page article here. It says upgrades available, and it kind of lists some of the things that you can get for your Atari. The GTIA upgrade it talks about, that it's free for units in warranty and outside of warranty. It costs $62.52, which is $22.52 for the part and 40 bucks for labor. If you're A10, you can get the ROM-C, which I think I talked about in one of the Creative Computings recently. They talked about sector formats. In addition, they talk about the A10 data separator board, which was also viewed as suspect by the uh, Creative Computing article of, I forget when it was, let's just say recently. And they also mention OS version B you can get. And that one is $49.78, which is 1978 for the part and $30 in labor. There's an article, Benchmarking the Fast Chip by Clyde Spencer. This is the floating point math chip that was also reviewed. I think it might have even been last month as well in the creative computing. And there's a couple benchmarks. First is computing a prime number in a you know small little for loop. And then the next one is a, a bunch of repeated floating point additions and multiplications. And in several basics, the Apple II did this little program in five seconds, the PET in six, the OSI in six, and the TRS-80 in 12. And then there's a listing for the Atari. So the, the original OS did 15 seconds. But if you turn Antic off, it does it in 11. Whereas with the fast chip, with the Antic on, it does it in 9.5 seconds. And if you turn Antic off, it does it in 6.5 seconds. 
And he said he tested it with basic A plus and said it was about a quarter second faster in all cases. And then interestingly says Microsoft basic was unavailable for comparison. <laughs> so a little uh, spelling error there. Microsoft, the, uh, the O and F being transposed. The other test program is this repeated floating point addition and uh, multiplication. It's also a test for precision. The Atari uses a four-byte representation of the what's called the mantissa, which is basically the, the digit part of the number, not the exponent. So it's the number of digits it can keep track of regardless of where the decimal point is. So some computers with a three-byte mantissa, like the IBM PC, would be able to run faster because there, you know there's less fewer bytes to manipulate. Anyway, it has a big old table of stuff. And uh, like the TRS-80 comes in at 37 seconds, the PET in 30, the VIC-20 in 27, the Apple II in 26, the TRS-80 Model 2 in 23. Oh, I guess the other the other TRS-80 was the original Coco. The Apple II in 20, the Sinclair ZX-81 in 13 and a half. And then we get to the PCs, the Osborne. Well, I guess the Osborne was not a PC, is it? No, it's CPM. Uh, that was in 8 seconds, and the IBM PC was in 7.5. The Atari with Antic on is in 15 and a half seconds, and with Antic off is in 10.5. But then when the fast chip is 11.5 with Antic on and 8 with Antic off. Again, he said basic A plus was about a quarter second faster. <laughs> it's uh, I forgot to mention that's basic A plus by optimized system software. We have some transposition issues in this uh, issue. So it's interesting that this type of manipulation of math in BASIC is fast, or fairly fast on the Atari. I mean, even without the fast chip, it's not it's not among the slowest. And there's the kitty cat finally wanting to get out. So let me let him out of the closet. I, however, will remain in the closet. There's an ad here I want to mention that just because it might be the least effective ad I've ever seen in one of these magazines, it's for Data Perfect. It says, for the Atari 400 and 800 computers, you make the comparison, and it's the rest of the page... One whole page. The rest of the page is a list in two columns of like features, I guess, of each of the programs, Data Perfect and File Manager 800. And it, so it lists a whole bunch of stuff, like, I don't know, probably 50 or 60 features. And it says, like, Data Perfect, yes, 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 for everyone in the column for Data Perfect. And then File Manager 800 is blank. There's nothing there. So it's like, are they actually expecting you to make the comparison? Like, look up all this stuff. Presumably, they expect like a bunch of no's, but you think they would least highlight that? I mean, yeah, this is the my vote for the least effective ad I've seen so far in the podcast, because clearly I remember every single ad I've ever seen. The next article is an assembly language article. It's called Bubble Sort by Adrian Derry, and it's the classic bubble sort, which is like the least effective sorting algorithm. It's order n squared, which means as your list grows, the number of time it takes to sort the list is the square of the number of items in it. So while it might work for a list of 10 items, which takes, you know, 100 comparisons to sort through those 10 items, a list of 100 items takes 10,000 comparisons. It's super efficient in terms of space, though. It's not a very complicated algorithm. But it has a little basic program where it, it has data statements, you know, for the machine language. It does have a machine language listing, but the basic program is kind of a demo of how to sort a, um, a file that has been divided into records. There's an article on having a good time by Pete Goodeve. And this article is about how to design an accurate timekeeping clock. So just using the frequency of the machine itself is not quite right because it's not 60 hertz it's and goes into kind of an explanation of ntsc signals and stuff and it's not even the exact like interlaced frequency of broadcast tv which is 95.94 hertz it actually uses 95.92 which means that if you use a vertical blank just to count you're you're going to get offset fairly rapidly so it's a machine language program including a listing that sort of intercepts the cassette initialization vector in order to persist through a, a system reset but it's got a nice explanation about what's going on, and uh, nicely commented if, oddly, they use a proportional font to list out the 
machine language code, so it's a bit hard to read. And another bit of errata, it says it was, it's split into two parts, so the article, I'm on, what am I, what page am I on? I'm on page 23, but then it sends you to page 65 for the rest of the article. I don't normally call that out, but I decided to do that this time. I don't know why. So, extra bonus. There's an article, The Musical Pilot by Ken Harms, and that's kind of what it says. It's uh, music using pilot, which is pretty opaque to me, so I'll skip that. The next is Audio While You See Load by John Victor, and this is how you add a voice track to data on your cassette program. But it says, unfortunately, that you can't actually do this on the Atari. It says you need another external tape drive or a reel-to-reel recorder. And he cautions against using like a you know your stereo cassette tape player to do this because the quality is not high enough, high enough, and says you really should use reel-to-reel recording as the source. And then the difficulty becomes how do you get the audio out of the Atari to be recorded on the reel-to-reel so that you can then duplicate it all later. And he gives the pinout of the SIO port because the audio comes out of the computer to be recorded on the right track of the cassette, it says. And then sound is on the left track. And he gives instructions on the timing and the the tones and stuff that the computer puts out before it actually starts recording data. So that would be a good article to refer to if you needed to record some audio on a a cassette program if you're going to start Shipping some cassettes and some some baggies at the store. There's an article, Music with Basic by Jerry White. Subtitle is Two Songs and a Tutorial for Would-Be Composers. Essentially, it's kind of how to use data statements to store your sound data as you play back a tone or a, a, a piece of music. So it's got a little listing of about, I don't know, 50-line basic program. Next is the article, Zounds by Ed Rotberg. And this is a story of his music synthesis program called the Rotberg Synthesizer. And he doesn't actually list the program, but he says he wants to share some of the inner workings. And so he goes into this theory of like how the program works, but he doesn't actually list it. And he says, eventually, eventually at the end of the article, he says, you pretty much got it. You can build it yourself now, knowing all this stuff that I told you about. But he describes the envelope of a sound that can mimic instruments. So there's an attack, a decay, sustain, and release. The ADSR, he says, is the standard way of referring to that. And he says there's three general approaches to how to deal with generating these dynamic sounds. You can either do algorithms, table-driven, or interpretive. And basically that he's chosen to do the interpretive. So he has this sort of little language. It's not a language, really, but it's like a, a sort of a binary format of you know command followed by arguments. And he lists them all. And um, apparently it's like the real values that he used for the his synthesizer, but he doesn't actually publish the code. So he has a nice summary of what each of the little opcodes means and what it does and the arguments to it and the, you know, the data that it takes for each opcode. But at the end, it just says, uh, that should be enough to get the more adventuresome of you started. But it's quite a thing to take the opcodes for some, you know, essentially a little language and then write the interpreter for it. Maybe it's proprietary Atari, but if it was, I'm surprised they were allowed him to share even this much. Next, we have two game listings and an apology. Now, this apology smacks a little bit of a scandal. I don't know what's going on here, but it says they published a game called Pack Invaders in Antic Issue 3, and they said it was the original work of Sheldon Lehman and not Vince Scott, as they said. They said uh, Sheldon Lehman's version was titled Outer Space Attack and it appeared in Softside in March of 82. And then it goes on to say that, that uh, Sheldon Lehman was the author of Instedit, which is a character editor program from APX, as well as an, say, an upcoming GTI tutorial from Educational Software. And it goes on to say, Soft Size Monthly Magazine, blah, blah, blah. This is apologized to all concern for any misrepresentation or confusion. And this, I think, is going to require a little investigation. So let's just do some digging here. I'm going to pull up Antic issue number three, which is their last issue, the August 82 issue. That's the printer's issue. Yeah, so it says, in the public domain, uh, Pack Invaders by Vince Scott. So let's take a look at that. That's on page 33 of that issue. All right, I see there's a little screenshot. Yeah, it looks a little Space Invader-y. 
All right, now let's look at that soft side. March 82, Outer Space Attack by Sheldon Lehman, page 65. The screenshot looks similar. And the soft side has the listing kind of broken out in their nice style where they have, um, you know, a couple lines of basic and then some text to document what's going on. And indeed, there's a follow-up article that says a take-apart of Outer Space Attack by Sheldon Lehman, where it goes in like two full pages worth of detail about some techniques used. So let me see if I can get these side by side here. Okay, and this is very interesting. There's some comments in the soft side version that don't appear, but if if I look, so there's a, in the soft side version, line 10 has I equals zero, J equals zero, count equals zero, attack equals zero, go sub 200, go to 140. On the pack invaders by Vince Scott, I, quote unquote Vince Scott, we have loop equals zero, loop two equals zero, tally equals zero, kill equals zero, go sub 280, go to 140. So my first glance here is Vince Scott went through and did renaming of some variables, but the line numbers are all the same. It's like if I pick a random line here, let's look at line, let's look at line 110 is count equals count plus one colon return. That's in Sheldon Lehman's version and soft side. And in um, Vince Scott's version in Antic is 110, line 110, tally equals tally plus one colon return. So it looks like we have here our first case of plagiarism. Yeah, Mr. Vince Scott just changed a bunch of variable names and foisted his off as his own. If I pick any other line here, let's see, 280 in the soft side version is a peak and then an if statement. Let's see what 280 says here. Look at that, a peak and an if statement. Got a bunch of data statements starting at line 440. Wouldn't you know, a bunch of data statements starting at line 440. Huh, so I think Antic needed a more strongly worded statement to a clear case of plagiarism. Back to our antic issue number four. The two games are Speed Demon by John Madziards. I'm sure I'm butchering that name, but there's a lot of consonants kind of stuck together. And the other one is Frog by Stan Okers. They're both basic games. The Speed Demon game, the subtitle is A Slick Way to Circumvent Player Missile Programming. And I'm like, what? I guess it's looks the screenshot looks like it's character animation. Or maybe not even animation, maybe just using graphics mode zero. Yeah, so Speed Demon is a pure basic program, and then Frog has a vertical blank and a display list interrupt. But those are just contained in data statements. It doesn't actually list the um, the assembly. There's an article, Tuning Your Atari by Linda M. Schreiber. And this is billed as a musical game for children, where it sort of turns the keyboard into like a little player piano, but it also records it so that the kids can then play it back later and you know, listen to their compositions. Then we get into some product reviews. There's a review of Sam, the software automatic mouth by Don't Ask Software, reviewed by Jerry White, and the voice box, which is a piece of hardware that synthesizes sound. It's by the Alien Group, and this is reviewed by Benton Elkins. And unfortunately, there's no comparison between the two. I mean, they don't tell how, you know, how different they sound to each other, which is better. It's just that they both can produce sound and they're you know both obviously computerized, but I would have liked to have seen some sort of comparison of what, like, which one they thought was better. There's a review of a couple of games, Nautilus by Synapse Software, reviewed by Gordon Miles, and KRZ Antics, reviewed by Jerry White. There's a little one-column ad for a game called Android Attack, which apparently is a super rare game. It's uh, by the amazingly named Pretzeland Software. Sort of looks like a multi-screen kind of... can't tell if it's a scrolling game or if it goes screen to screen. And Curiosity got the better of me, and so I fired it up, and it's a, it does go screen to screen. It's kind of like Berserk, where you sort of march through these mazes, and um, you know robots are attacking you, but it looks like it's character animated, so you're just, you just hop from cell to cell, so it's not a smoothly moving um, you know, avatar of, of, for your player. And it requires basic, it's, it's kind of on the, what I would call like a you know, type-in quality game, maybe, but I do love the company name, Pretzeland Software. There's a section called The Fourth Factory. It's uh, Turtle Graphics Part 2 by Gordon Smith. And you know, fourth is not my friend. There's an article, A Message on the Medium, 
by Carl Evans, and this is about sort of the inner workings of the 410 program recorder. Talking about stuff like frequency shift keying, FSK, and the sort of wavelengths at which the program recorder stores its data. Then we're getting near the end of the magazine and starting to get into some of the smaller little ads. And I see one for the uh, the first one I've seen that I noticed, anyway, or that I remember, for a, a happy computing modification for your 810 disk drive. And I always wished I had a happy drive back then. Me and my pirating ways. Then we get into kind of the land of the half-page and quarter-page ads. There's one for... Chopper Rescue by Microprose Software. There's a little quarter page ad for the world's most complete pocket programming aid. It says, unlock your Atari. 16 comprehensive pages with error codes, basic commands with abbreviations, peak and poke locations, internal codes, machine language aids, and much, much more. Get yours now. Only $9.95. Dealer ad space available. Order cash. Charge COD. Advanced Computing Enterprises in Shawnee Mission, Kansas. Oh, maybe I'll stop by next time I'm at Kansas Fest. I wonder if that's been archived anywhere. There's an ad for the Bit3 80-column card, the Full View 80, a bunch of memory expansions, and then a dealer directory. It lists about, what, 15 states and a bunch of places to... Uh, not sure if this is where they sell Antic or... No, it looks like it might be for, like, hardware... Well, everything. Hardware, software, peripherals, it says. So if you live in California, Connecticut, Florida, Iowa, Illinois, Maryland, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, Utah, or Washington, you are in luck. There may be a store near you. And there's the index to advertisers, and on the inside back cover, there is Fernando Herrera's Astro Chase. And the first ad I've seen, I think, for First Star Software. And on the back cover, there's the first ad I think I've seen from the company formerly known as Online Systems, Sierra Online. There's an ad for Ultima One. It says, Ultima comes to the Atari. Lord British welcomes all Atari owners into his magical realm and wishes you the best of luck. Yeah, so a bunch of firsts in this magazine. Got the first ad from First Star Software, from Sierra Online, and the first case of plagiarism. Let's turn to compute. This is issue number 29, October 1982, volume 4, number 10. It's 2 bucks 50 on the cover price, pound eighty-five in the UK, and it looks like a good one. Above the title, where it says, you know, Compute, the Journal for Progressive Computing, it says The Future of Games, and it says Compute talks to Adventure International, Atari, Brotherbund, Commodore, Online Systems, Sirius Software, and others. And then below the title, it says Special Games Issue, and it lists a bunch of games, presumably type-ins. It says Supercharge, Mathman, Meteor Storm, Laser Barrage, and much more. The image is kind of a sort of micro 6502-6809 journal. It's kind of like you're looking out through the screen, and you're looking at a, a look, looks like a father and daughter playing a video game, you know, joysticks in hand. And it lists writing games for computers with limited memory, which is to say all the computers of the time. Color mixing on the Atari. Game reviews for the PET, Atari, Apple, VIX, Sinclair, and more. And then for other lesser computers, it says uh, software digital speech synthesis for Apple and PET, character set editor for the VIC-20, and the Commodore 64 memory map. Turning to the table of contents, it lists all those type-in games. And then for Atari stuff, it calls out uh, reviews of four Atari games, uh, the Inside Atari section, the Turtle Pilot Part 2, which we probably won't cover. In fact, I know we won't cover. Calls out an article called Atari Rainbow Colors by Page Flipping. And the only remaining Atari thing is adding by counting Atari and preschoolers. And in the features section, the sort of marked as generic is the Computer Games of Tomorrow article mentioned on the cover and then the limited memory programming. So let's get to it. In the editor's notes, they note that the TI-994A has a new $100 rebate, so bringing its take-home price to $199. It says the, they weren't aware that, that, that TI had reduced the price to $299 before the rebate. And it says the stock market welcomed all this news enthusiastically, promptly lowering the stock price of all the <laughs> all the companies involved, TI, Commodore, Warner Brothers, Brothers, you know, Atari, and Tandy. 
said Atari announced a software coupon sort of attempting to match price for the 400 and that the Commodore was lowering the price on their VIC-20. Apparently, West Coast subscribers here at Notes were having late-arriving subscriptions, so they said they now have a new mailing center out on the West Coast. So, yep, so you're out here on the West Coast, your issue's going to get here earlier. And finally, they note there's a new president of the Atari Home Computer Division. Apparently, Roger Battister resigned in June, and then Ray Kassar announced that a John Cavalier was now going to be the president of the Home Computer Division. And in keeping with appointing people not from the computer industry, because I think Ray Kassar was like from the garment industry, if I remember right. This John Cavalier is the was the vice president and general manager of the Dixie slash Marathon unit of the American Can Company. And I don't want to appear too cynical, but uh, someone working in the can industry might not be the first one I might think of to uh, run a home computer division, but that's just me. There's the column Computers and Society by David Thornburg. And what drew me to this one is he mentions there was a issue of the Weekly World News. I don't know if you remember that tabloid, which shockingly still seems to exist, but it's almost like comedy parody. I mean, the parody is so bad, it's not even a parody anymore. And they seem to have a big obsession with Bigfoot and space aliens. But anyway, in Compute, it's mentioned there was a headline, Teen Killed by Video Game, where it claims that a player at the controls of Berserk started to slump to the ground and die. And Thornburg writing says that, of course, the article went out to point out that the coroner found the boy had an undetected heart condition and it was the stress that killed him. And then goes on to say that if the kid had died on a tennis court, it wouldn't have been as newsworthy. Sort of missing the point that he's getting his news from this crazy made-up story paper. All right, well, let's move on from the weekly world news. The next article is The Computer Games of Tomorrow by Tom Halfhill. This is the interview with some of the game designers and um, company executives mentioned on the cover. And so it opens with this like five-paragraph sort of description of what might happen if holographic computer games were become a reality and this, you know, tricking somebody that something is real, and talks about the trend of games trying to more closely simulate reality, saying that almost anything is possible in 20 or 30 years. And so this is going to be an interesting article as to what these current game designers think is going to happen in the future. So first up is Scott Adams, who says, Five years ago, I could never have predicted where things are today, so there's no way I could anticipate what's going to happen even five years from now. There's a quote from Michael Tomczak, who is the product marketing manager for Commodore, saying, If people today are becoming bored with electronic games, it's become because they're becoming too sophisticated. And he says the whole question is whether the game players will outstrip the technology or whether the technology will outstrip the players. Sort of this arms race, I guess, as to how fast the technology develops versus you know what the expectations are. Cat update, the cat is back. So we'll see how this goes. In sort of a difference of opinion, there's a quote from Ernie Brock, who's the product manager for Sirius Software, who does mostly Apple stuff, saying that computer games... Oop, all right, can't step on the computer, kitty cat. Can't stop the stepping. Saying that, I think people will always be fascinated by computer games. They'll never tire of these fantasy worlds, and, you know, people still watch TV, don't they? You know, the idea that people still listen to music and still buy... Well, they say records here, but, you know, still buy music. That idea there'll still be content on computer games, and people will always be able to find new content. Ken Williams of Online Systems, here is still credited as Online Systems, although we just saw the ad for Sierra Online. But his quote was, The key is that the computer can temporarily make you into something you are not. The idea that escapism will always be make the computer game popular. And a complimentary quote from Chris Crawford says that games will move into like sort of larger realms. And he says, like, the current glut of space and fantasy games will be supplanted, he says, by computer simulations of soap operas, westerns, detective mysteries, cops and robbers stories, and even gothic romances. 
The article then talks about fads, and it said the current audience and market is pretty slim, talking about mainly, at this point, children and young adults with excellent reflexes and almost an insatiable appetite for space and fantasy themes. It says too many people are left out. And then brings about mention of Pac-Man, saying that it started to attract more women. And we've talked about this a little in the past. Sort of anecdotally, it was that women were not attracted to playing video games when a large part of it may have been, you know, gatekeeping and society sort of more enforcing gender roles than as compared to now. There's a quote from Jim Wilde, who is the vice president of sales for United Microware, Inc., which is a game company that I don't know that I've heard of, said, There doesn't seem to be much femaleness in computer games today. They seem to be left out of computer games. I've talked to many, many young women in my own organization and elsewhere, and always ask them, What would you like to see in a computer game? And I always get a blank stare. Hmm, blank stare, really? Refreshingly, they actually talked to a woman, Joanna Lee, who's a consultant for uh, this United Microware company. She says, I don't like violence and I'm not into science fiction, so I don't like space games. I don't like the little aliens running around on the screen. The only game I really liked was Pac-Man. Sort of the conclusion of this section, anyway, is that there's this huge potential market for female game players and that they're not going to be ignored anymore. Not to say it's going to be the majority of the market, anyway, and the article says that the young males will still dominate the market. And then a follow-up quote from Lee says, uh, Sure, I, I would prefer to write more a non-violent type game, but I have to think about what is marketable. The article now shifts gears and says, So now that we have some idea of where gaming is headed, what technological form will it take? It says everybody pretty much agrees that computer games will continue to grow more sophisticated, and that'll come in better simulations of environments. And they seem to get stuck on video discs, like it's going to be little movies that get played and sequenced or stitched together. You know, sort of this interactive movie type thing. And only after four or five paragraphs of that do they start to mention 3D at all. But that's sort of in the scope of, like, three-dimensional viewing of images, like as in the stereo glasses, not in like 3D rendered stuff on a screen. But even so, they kind of missed the mark on the 3D games. Fred Dignazio here comes in with the idea that games will become more immersive. And although he mentions sort of physical isolation, and here he's talking about like booths, you know, like kind of sitting in like a, like a cockpit cabinet in the arcades. But then he also mentions, you know, headphones or glasses or additional stuff to physically isolate people from each other. And then Dignazio goes into more what he calls telegaming, which is what we recognize, of course, as network gaming. Here it is kind of imagined, though, as in arcades where you are competing on, you know, say, Galaxians, it mentions, as, you know, against somebody else in a different city. The article mentions a contemporary game, and there are, you know, several of the time, but one he mentions is uh, Scott Adams' Combat, which is linked over a modem. And these multiplayer games led Dignazio to mention that I think there'd be a great audience for watching world-class video game players. You could have instant replays, slow motions, and commentators going over their moves. And, and he certainly got that right. There are certainly professional video game players now. And Dignazio goes on to say that games will be, end up being found everywhere. And he talks about things being built into systems. You know, he says, like, the back seats of cars, uh, implanted in the ceilings of bedrooms, which, yeah. And then he gets on to stuff that actually happened, like being reduced to book size and carried on subways by teenagers. It says he thinks they might even be built into eyeglasses, so a true addict can throw the switch and see video games on the inside of his lenses. Hello, Oculus? The article concludes kind of with a sort of back and forth between Tomzik, the guy from Commodore, and Chris Crawford. So Tomzik looks to the future as described by Tron and have these, you know, sort of immersive 3D. And he says, the computer is you and you are the computer. And then Crawford says all that stuff to be able to plug into the computer and see colorful 3D images. And he says, that's not going to happen. Crawford says, I don't see technological development as the driving force in computer games. I think the main constraint is lack of creativity and imagination. And he goes on to say that uh, Crawford believes that most people are satisfied with the current state of computer games. 
And Crawford compares computer games to car development, saying a development of cars since 1932 has been more, more of the way of polish than of new technology. And summarizes, says, Although I believe the technology of new hardware will be forced upon us, I don't believe we'll need it to develop the computer games of the future. And so, yeah, the article got some things right and got a bunch of stuff wrong, as in most predictions. I think Chris Crawford's, like, idealized versions of computer games sort of were met with the blunt reality of fast hardware and let's see what we can do with it. The next column is Writing Your First Game, the beginner's page, a monthly column. This is by Richard Mansfield, senior editor. It begins, if you're tempted to write your own games, go ahead. It's a good way to learn to program. Games are basically the same as any other kind of programming. It says games basically fall into two categories, which are imitations of old games, i.e. not computer games, mentioning like Checkers and Othello, and then games that couldn't be played without a computer, mentioning like Space Invaders and Pac-Man. He says the second category is more difficult because you have to think up all the rules yourself. He contends that it's easier to write these existing games as your first game rather than an arcade game for a couple reasons. One is because you don't have to figure out the rules because you already know them or they're already available to be you know, looked up. And two, you can write them in basic because they're not so dependent on speed that you would need assembly language for. And there's a listing of about a 30 page, ba- or 30 page, 30 line basic program of a game called basically High Card, which is just like drawing a card to see which is the highest and the highest wins. And he kind of goes through sort of a, a very gentle explanation of what each line of the program does. So this purports to be a monthly column, and I guess we'll see in future issues uh, how this develops. There's been a bunch of ads here in these last four pages for Atari stuff. There's a baseball from in-home software, which I don't remember seeing. Pool 1.5, which I do remember seeing. Then there's one from Sublogic. It's a kid's game. They advertise three kid's games that I haven't seen. One caught my eye. It said, uh, Sky Rescue, use your helicopter to rescue the people of Irata from the Mad Bomber. And it's funny how as a kid, I didn't really realize that Irata was Atari spelled backwards in Mule. And now as I look now, it's like I just see it referenced everywhere. And the next page is an ad from a company called Computer Magic that lists four games. It's a Balloon, Chaos, spelled K-A-Y-O-S, Mad Netter, and Pogo Man, four games that I don't know of. According to Atari Mania, they're all really rare, and none of them are particularly well-reviewed there. Back to the magazine now, we come to an article, Programming Games on Computers with Limited Memory. And it's just a little one-page article, and it's all about basic techniques. It doesn't really say what memory limit they're targeting, but yeah, it's a collection of about, I don't know, 10 little tips you can use in your basic programs. There's an ad for Paperclip by Batteries Included Software. This is for the PET CBM, but I remember Paperclip was kind of a sought-after word processor on the Atari platforms. I ended up using Atari Writer for all my stuff. I think I may have had a pirated copy of Paperclip. It was fairly unique in that it had a hardware device to do its copy protection, so obviously the version I had had been cracked. In the first of the type-in games, we get to Meteor Storm. This is by Emo Engels of Springfield, Virginia. They have versions for the Pet and the Atari. And it's kind of like a Meteor Storm game. You're like sort of navigating your ship through a, looks like, scrolling meteor field. It's an 89-line basic program on the pet, and I say that because it's an interesting use of basic line numbering. The author actually increases the line numbers by 1 in basic on the pet version. The Atari version is just regular, you know, increased by 10, but it's slightly longer because it looks like it has better graphics. It's about 100 lines of Atari basic. The next program is called Rubik's Cube Solved by Dieter Kiespert of Glendale, Arizona. And so this is a basic program that actually solves, has the, has the algorithm encoded somehow to actually solve the cube based on the colors that you input on each side. It's written for the pet, although there's modifications suggested for the Atari. It's not, it doesn't have a full Atari listing because of the length of the program, it says. But looking at this program, it's almost 600 lines, and it's somehow they recorded the algorithm to solve the Rubik's Cube inside this, and it really is like, like 90% of the program are if statements, 
and go sub statements. So I don't know how the author figured out where all these, how to encode the solution to a Rubik's cube in this stuff. Because there'll be an if statement, and then it'll be uh, the next line will be go sub go sub go sub. Another if statement go sub go sub. Sometimes there's an if statement, and there's like ten go subs afterwards. It's and it's laid out with no comments, and I have no idea how anybody could figure out how this works. It almost seems like it must have been obfuscated, maybe unintentionally, but at least the comments removed in order to make it publishable in a type-in magazine. But the idea you would type this in with the go subs from, like there's one section in near the beginning where you're like, go sub 4290, go sub 4290, go sub 4330, go sub 4530, go sub 4390. It's just like, yeah, how would you ever check this actually that you typed it incorrectly? I have no idea. I would rather type in the hexadecimal listing of Livewire again from analog than type this in. This is crazy. I mean, it's amazing, but it's crazy. The next type-in game is Super Chase by Anthony Godstall of Elkhart, Indiana. It says it's an arcade-style game where you try to eat all the treasures before the monster eats you. It's for the Vic and the Atari. No screenshot. Atari looks like it's maybe 200 lines. And the next type-in program is Math Man by Andy Hayes of San Jose, California. It's for the Vic and the Atari as well. That teaches math while it entertains, it says. It says it presents multiplication problems, and if you type in the wrong answer... One of your group of friends that's displayed on the on the screen leaves in shame. And if you have if you lose all your friends, the game's over. So that's yeah. It hits a little too close to home there for my uh, school aged self. The next type in game is called Tag, which purports to be like the normal game of tag, like you would play outside. It's for the Atari or the pet, and it describes it differently than regular tag, as in every 15 seconds the person who is it will change. And if you so if you can't ch- tag the other person, the other player, within 15 seconds, uh, you lose a point. I don't know. That actually is not super clear. In the notes for the Atari version, it talks about how it uses a redefined character set and also uses a display list interrupt. And obviously that's in uh, machine language. And so it just has a data statement listing all the, the opcodes. It doesn't actually explain or list what the machine language code looks like. Up next in the type-in section is Laser Barrage by Sean Igo of Ogden, Utah for the Atari and the Pet. It's a single screen sort of ar- arcade style game, it says. There are 15 enemy robots and a bunch of fuel pods. It says 10 fuel pods that you have to defend. The robots try to grab your fuel pods and you can destroy them with, destroy the robots with a laser. It does include screenshots of this one. It seems vaguely sort of Robotron-like, I imagine, without the sort of frenetic action of Robotron. The Atari version looks to be about 200 lines of basic covering about four uh, columns, four full columns. More type-in stuff continues. This is a world of inside the computer column from Fred Dignazio. He has a little basic game that's reminiscent of Mad Libs. It's about 120 lines of basic, most of which are print statements. Here's an article, Computer Simulations Learning Through Exploration, Discovery, and Play. This is by Glenn Kleiman of Teaching Tools Microcomputer Services in Palo Alto here in California and talks about the need for active learning, as it's called, sort of like learning by doing stuff. He has sort of overviews of several computer games. One is called Road Trip, where your job is to plan a trip from two places and you have a certain budget to spend. Unfortunately, it's only for the Apple II. And then another game mentioned is Rocky's Boots, which I've heard a lot about. Again, I think only for the Apple II. Atari Mania doesn't show that it was available for the Atari anyway. But it's a game about learning logic and sort of discrete circuitry, Boolean logic, that kind of stuff. Everybody who I've talked to at Kansas Fest about it raves about the game. And then he mentions other games like Lemonade Stand, Oregon Trail, uh, Air Traffic Controller, Three Mile Island, some other games that have sort of a point of sort of teaching you stuff that's applicable to the school setting while not actually being, you know, total rote learning things like that math program we just talked about. Next, we come to Turtle Pilot, including Pilot for Atari, it says, by Alan Poole of Loomis, California. 
And this is mentioned in the last episode. There's an article about this, the sort of full-blown pilot language interpreter for the Apple. Well, this is the Atari version. And so this is a pilot interpreter based in Atari Basic. It's probably 500 lines of Basic over like seven pages in the magazine. The actual interpreter apparently was written by Charles Brannan, the editorial assistant here at Compute. And so I guess the big draw of Pilot is, you know, the turtle graphics. And so that the bulk of the program seems to be drawing stuff. It has a few little example programs to type in, and presumably it's like compatible with the programs that were in last month's uh, issue as well. Then we come to the review section. We have four Atari games reviewed by Charles Brannan, and these are all Datasoft games. It's Canyon Climber, Pacific Coast Highway, Clowns and Balloons, and Shooting Arcade. I believe these are the same four that are included in the ad for the Datasoft. I can't seem to locate the ad, but it, these games certainly seem familiar. Shooting Arcade is kind of like a carnival game where you use the joystick to control like a gun position and you're trying to shoot little little targets that go left and right. Pacific Coast Highway is kind of a Frogger-style game. Canyon Climber, I think I mentioned last episode, is a platform game that I found pretty frustrating. One of the first games that I had for the Atari on, on cassette, actually. And finally, Clowns and Balloons is kind of a circus-style game. Atari Mania classifies it as the breakout-slash-circus group, where you've got these two little guys with a trampoline on the bottom, and stuff is uh, going by on the top that you've got to hit, and you so you bounce this little, this little guy or something up in the air to like collect all those things. It appears to be joystick-controlled, but this would be more naturally controlled by the paddle controllers. In another review, there's a Raster Blaster by the reviews by GL Cop of Indianapolis, Indiana. And Raster Blaster is a pinball game. It first appeared on the Apple and was converted to the Atari here. I'm going to have to play one of these pinball games one of these days. I don't really remember playing them at all. I think I may have had some, you know, back in the pirating days, but there's no lasting memories from them. I've really kind of gotten into pinball a little bit. Well, the last times I physically went to like California Extreme here in the Bay Area or the PRGE really found myself spending a lot of time at the pinball section. So it'll be interesting to see how these games kind of play in terms of actual pinball. I'll briefly mention the Commodore 64 memory map. This is a six-page article. Mostly, the first two pages are graphics, kind of graphically showing where the hardware registers are in the first two pages of memory, like high, you know, the high hardware registers. And then the following four pages are going through the zero page and then some of the low memory locations. It's kind of a very terse description, you know, like a several word description, and it doesn't really give much additional details as to what is involved in using some of that stuff. I just find it interesting as it's a very different setup than the Atari, for sure. Let's swerve out of that Commodore detour and back onto the Atari road here. This article is Atari Rainbow Colors by Page Flipping by Robert W. Myers from Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is like something we talked about last episode, using page flipping and changing colors and using sort of the persistence of vision and the CRT nature to trick your eye into seeing more colors as these colors are blended together by using two different palettes that are swapped at every vertical blank. And so by setting up two different pages in memory and having pixels in slightly different positions with different colors and flipping between them rapidly will allow these colors to blend and give you more colors than you can normally generate on a single screen. So essentially, you're trading memory for colors, you know, more memory for more colors. Something I didn't really mention last episode is that one of the downsides of this technique on modern hardware is is unless you can get your emulator to sync to the vertical refresh rate of your monitor, it's not going to really look very good. It's not guaranteed that your LCD on, you know, your laptop or modern computer is going to refresh at 60 hertz or 50 hertz if you're in PAL. But even if it does, your emulator may not sync to it. And additionally, because there's no sort of phosphor persistence on an LCD, you're really relying on your own physical, like biological systems, your the quote-unquote refresh rate of your eyes to blend these colors together. So yeah, I, I've yet to see my emulator do any justice to this technique. 
Perhaps Altera on Windows is better able to sync to the refresh rate. I know I have not played with Altera all that much. And so, yeah, maybe there's better controls there or maybe on a Mac or something. Moving on, we come to adding by counting Atari and preschoolers. So these are several basic programs that apparently only use the console keys to, for input. So little kids don't have to remember typing on the whole keyboard. They just use the option and select keys, it looks like. I don't know how effective it is, but it's there if you want to try it. Then we come to the Inside Atari column. This is by Will Wilkinson of Optimized System Software of Cupertino, California. And the bulk of the article is an assembly language conversion of the basic program from last month's column. And so it's kind of a line-by-line conversion where he lists the basic line and then lists all the assembly language below it needed to do the work of that line of basic. And it's in a pretty straightforward assembly language way. He's not trying to do any sort of optimization. He's like listing stuff as plainly as he can in order to make it sort of an easy intro into assembly language programming. There's some errata that he lists as well on his book Inside Atari DOS that was just published. And so it says the error occurs in the text on page 11 and the diagram on page 14. So I actually have my Inside Atari DOS book here and I'm going to go look at it. So page 11. Okay, yeah, so I see they're referring to the last three bytes of a data sector. They said here in the book that bytes 126 and 127 sort of include the file number and the pointer to the next sector, and then byte 125 includes the number of bytes that are valid within that sector. But actually, it's it's the number of bytes that are valid in the sector is actually byte 127, and so it's bytes 125 and 126 that are the bytes that include the file number and the next sector. So yeah, so my book does have that errata in it. I don't know if a later edition corrected that or not. There's an article on telegaming by Michael E. Day, and it's kind of just an overview of what telegaming is. It doesn't really have much to say about any current games or how it currently works, but kind of is just like a gentle overview to this, and then it points to that Future Games article that we looked at earlier in the magazine. Next is the column uh, Machine Language by Jim Butterfield. It's subtitled The Beginner's Dilemma. It said the beginner is, is faced with three challenges. Not only do you have to learn the machine code, but you also must learn how to use the tools and learn the architecture. He says learning the machine code itself is the easiest part, just learning all the mnemonics and stuff, and the assemblers do a good job of helping you. The next, using the tools, uh, you know, because machine language, you can just lock up the whole program instantly. You've got to have a way to recover from that and debug that. And then the architecture stuff, you know, you need a good memory map and, you know, technical documentation that sometimes isn't easy to come by. And we're nearing the end of the magazine here. We'll skip over some Vic and Pet and Apple stuff. In the new product section, they list there's a Christmas music collection for the Atari. It's, yeah, here in October 82, yeah, we're getting close to, to, to Christmas time. So this is from B.I.G. Software, not the Notorious version, unfortunately. But apparently this is like a whole music system that has some, uh, I guess, it doesn't really say, but I guess it's just like pokey versions of a bunch of stuff, a bunch of Christmas tunes here. And then it has plans for all these future releases saying pop and show tunes, country and western, as well as a wide selection of classical music. I guess the advantage of this over like a record is that it says you can like repeat songs or you can set up like a little playlist or you can have them play in different orders. But unless there's some sort of like graphics or something going on, I can't see that this would be a big draw in, instead of, you know, just buying record albums or, you know, cassette tapes or whatever at the time. Also in the new product stuff, they mentioned the fast chip, as we've gone over several times in this episode and previous episodes. This is being touted as a how to speed up your basic stuff. And finally, on the back cover, we have Fernando Herrera's Astro Chase from First Star Software. This is Creative Computing. It's October 1982, volume 8, number 10. Two bucks ninety-five on the cover price. It's the number one magazine of computer applications and software. The sash on the side says a practical guide to computers and education. So me in 1982 would probably not have spent a whole lot of time with this. 
And it's funny, me now probably would not spend a whole lot of time with this, but somewhere in the middle, I might have been more interested in educational use of computers. But now, like then, it's pretty much all games and programming. And I guess I have to clarify assembly language programming, because there's a lot of languages listed here, like there's a pilot to basic translator, uh, what is logo, but those aren't my focus now. It does list in the review section here on the on the cover page, it says uh, Apple TI, TRS-80, and Atari games, so we'll obviously we'll look at that. And scores of new products from the NCC and CES. And I'm blanking what the NCC is, we'll look it up in a second. So the image on the cover page is this sort of ethereal-looking computer with a monitor. It's, you know, it's all kind of fuzzy and kind of hazy, but it's got this super long chemical equation. You know, 3H2O plus 2CO2 plus C2H5OH reacts to 2C2H5OH plus 3O2. I have no idea what that does, or even if that's a real chemical reaction. And there's another one. This, I don't know. This can't be right. 13Al27 plus 2He4, so 13 aluminum atoms plus 2 helium-4s reacts to 14 silicon 30s plus, plus 1 hydrogen? Look, I did terrible at chemistry, but this, there's no way, this is, this is alchemy right here, turning one atom into another. I mean, I can imagine what happened. They just decided to put some chemical-y things up there, kind of like in Terminator the movie, when you have that sort of point of view shot looking out of the Terminator's vision and they see the, the code scrolling past really fast. Well, if you freeze frame that, it turns out it's 6502 assembly, Apple II code from Nibble magazine. There's even some comments visible. It's uh, apparently some disk access code. It's stuff that looks impressive if you don't know what it is. And I got distracted by the chemical equations and coming out of this sort of ethereal computer is sort of this wispy hand and then it's touching a human hand as if it's imparting this knowledge of the chemical reactions. Well, there's an amazing 326 pages in this issue. And if they're all about chemical reactions, we won't be covering very much of it. And in fact, looking at the table of contents, we may not cover much at all because there's only two mentions of the Atari. One is an article called Joy Tricks, where it says controller modifications for Atari computers and VCS. And the other is something called Animath, drill and practice with the Atari and in the applications and software section. So it must be some review. Um, yeah, we'll check that out. But interestingly, there's no Outpost Atari in this issue. So I don't know what happened there. So the education section is the bulk of the first 60 or so pages, where they have reviews of some educational stuff, mostly for the Apple II and TRS-80. Then on page 65, we get to our first review, and this is a game for the TI. And on the opposite page is the first ad I've seen for the TI home computer that has Bill Cosby as the spokesperson. And I remember him being the spokesperson on both print and TV ads. And now, of course, he's in prison being convicted of sexual assault. Back in the time of my original use of the Atari, I was listening to Bill Cosby. And I loved his stand-up. We had, you know, records of his stand-up, and I would listen to him endlessly. He was a big hero of mine. I was looking forward to having my kids listen to his stand-up because it has just some, you know, great classic routines. Yeah, now I can't do it. You know, I just can't separate the artist from his art. Yeah, his terrible crimes have just invalidated his art for me. I don't know. Don't have heroes, I guess. You'll just get disappointed. Anyway, we go on to arcade games for the Apple, unfortunately, not for the Atari. There's 11 reviews here. The one that I do want to talk about is a review of Rear Guard. So this is the Apple version. This is by John Anderson. And this is a much more complete game than the Atari version. It compares it to Defender, where you have ships coming towards you, as well as one ship going in the same direction as you. In the Atari version, all the ships were going in the same direction as you, and you had to like sort of avoid them and then shoot them from the back. Here, there's sort of additional dimensions to the game, and I think it's, you know, it's much more of a complete game. There's no other games here listed that I recognize as being also available for the Atari, unfortunately. And it's not until the next article entitled Dungeons and Asteroids do we get some Atari reviews. The first is Warlock's Revenge, which is an adventure game of some sort. There's no screenshot. It's reviewed by David Small and says it's a port of Old Dwarf's Revenge, which was an Apple game. 
So it says it's a graphics adventure, you know, leading a party through a dungeon where you're any of several types of characters and you have skills. Kind of, you know, it's a Dungeons and Dragons kind of game. It says there's pictures on the top part of the screen and two-word command text parser on the bottom. He's not very positive on the game. Um, one of the criticisms is that the graphics are done in Graphics 8, and he said, artifacting can be of use to a programmer who understands it. The folks that, who did Warlock didn't. And so he says you're better off if you can just turn off the color on your TV. So it's kind of, of a middling review. It says, you know, that graphics obviously aren't that great, but he says it's enjoyable, and even though there's other competing adventures on the market, this is still good enough. He then continues on to review of a game called Chaos, K-A-Y-O-S, by Computer Magic Limited, which I just mentioned I saw in an ad earlier. And he said, the game's very well done technically, and obviously a great deal of work went into it, and he has no complaints with it technically, but the human interface isn't very good, and he says it's simply too fast for people. There's a field of asteroids on the screen crossing space from left to right, he says. Complex animation tasks for sure, I'm sure somebody worked very hard on it. But he said the enemies that attack come out at blinding speed, he said, so fast he could never actually identify what they were. He said his average playtime was about a minute or two, and he just couldn't see spending too much time on the game. He says it's a game sadly in need of a few strategically placed delay loops, and he hopes for a new release soon where they correct this issue. And that's really it for the Atari reviews. Moving on in the magazine, there's an article about the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. This is not an Atari-specific thing, but apparently there's a... It says an interactive video disc system is available that sort of walks students through this and the engineering challenges around it. And this is the first I've seen mention, that I can recall anyway, of... I'm assuming it's the LaserDisc system, you know, those, what, 12-inch analog platters? I'm assuming that's what they're talking about. They mentioned a Pioneer VP-1000 machine, which, and yeah, looking that up, that's the one of the first commercially available LaserDisc machines. So it describes a little bit about LaserDiscs and mentioned that each side of a disc can contain about 50,000 frames of video. You know, doing the math there, that is about 30 minutes of video per side of the disc. And I didn't really recall that, but looking up info, I guess there are ways to extend that to about 60 minutes per side if you do a, a different, slightly different technology. But yeah, I didn't realize that laser discs held that small amount of data. But anyway, this article is about using a laser disc interactively to like step through the process of learning about the bridge and learning about the engineering and learning about the failure. And obviously, this is like the beginning of this sort of attempt to use interactive video to teach physics. And I wonder how far it got. We get to some articles on Logo and some other educational programming. And then, oh, we come to an article. It's the uh, International Computer Problem Solving Contest, the results. I mentioned this last episode. This is by Donald D. Peel. And it includes a list of all the winners for the elementary division, the junior division, and the senior division, as well as a listing of at least one way to solve all the problems that they are, were given. And all the solutions are in AppleSoft Basic. There were 118 teams at 46 contest sites for the elementary division. And he said this is the first year they agreed to do an elementary division, not knowing what the response would be, and, and said they were pleased to have that many. In the junior division, which is the 7 through 9 grades, there were 83 contest sites and 307 teams. And then the senior division, which was 10 through 12, there were 147 contest sites and 586 teams. Most of the teams mentioned, it seemed, used Apple II computers. A couple TRS-80s, no mention of any Atari use that I can see. He said on the surface it might appear that the contest programs were too easy, but he said it was probably just about right since only, he said, less than 2% of the senior teams and 3% of the junior teams solved all five problems. All the teams used BASIC this year. Apparently in the last contest, some had used Pascal. But because of the time limits imposed by the contest, the compilation time puts the Pascal users at a handicap. 
In conclusion, he says that it's never been the intention of this contest to glorify the winning team or the concept of winning in general. There's no trip to Disneyland or free microcomputer for the winning team. The top team in each division simply has their names engraved in the traveling silver trophy, which they can keep for one year. He said most of the recognition that the teams got came in the local level where, where like newspaper articles and stuff were published about the winning teams and the competitors. He says, next year's contest will be held on Saturday, April 30th, 1983. says, in order to continue organizing and printing the contest, a small fee of $2 will be charged for each local contest site. says, complete details will be announced in January in Creative Computing. So we'll keep an eye out for that. Next is the article on the CES and the NCC, which turns out to be the National Computer Conference. That was the show in the Astrodome. So both of these were back in June, and they were held simultaneously. And I think that was mentioned in one of the other magazines that covered these shows. So at this point, the CES is still twice a year. The January show is in Las Vegas, and the summer show is in Chicago. And unlike the implication of its name, the CES is really targeting dealers, not consumers themselves. So in this article written by David H. All, he says that the CES is a place for trial balloons, as he says. Manufacturers will show prototypes, and if they get enough orders, they will actually go into production. And he says, three years ago, there were five video game systems that were shown at CES, but only the Atari VCS ever really made it to market in a significant manner. This year, he said there were six systems shown, the VCS, the Atari 5200, which will be available for the first time this Christmas, the Intellivision, the Odyssey 2, the ColecoVision, and then he said systems from Emerson and Tyrom, but doesn't mention what those are, and those may be like single-purpose systems. I don't know, it's unclear from this. This is one of the first mentions of the, of the 5200 being available, and next episode I'm actually going to do some talk about the 5200 and how it relates to the 800. And even though I, I know there's several 5200 podcasts, it's, I'm not going to compete with them, I do want to go over sort of some technical like differences between the two systems. So the remainder of the article is a big list of stuff that he saw at the shows, and so I'll just kind of list those here. First is the Epson HX20, which is that kind of notebook-style machine with a full-stroke keyboard and this um, 20 by 4 LCD screen. I've mentioned that recently as well. There's a Chromemco CPM system. There's a Wang Professional Computer, another CPM system. There's the Grid Systems, the $8,000 computer that was kind of a sort of a laptop thing that looked a lot like the machine they built on that first season of uh, Halt and Catch Fire, which I've also talked about in a previous episode. There's some company called Microsource that has like a Osborne style computer, a portable TV and a disk drive and a keyboard that kind of flips up. It's another CPM machine. There's the Dynabyte Monarch, which is a multi-user system, 256K of RAM and 19 megabyte Winchester disk storage, nine RS-232 serial ports for terminals. It's a bargain $10,995. There's an Apple III CPM card that was announced. There's a Zenith dual MPU system. It's MPU meaning microprocessor unit. So it has a a 16-bit and an 8-bit microprocessor in in the same system. He talks about five machines from Commodore, first starting with the Commodore Max machine, which looks like it's kind of a, it says a three-in-one home computer slash game machine slash music synthesizer. It seems like it has very similar specs to the Commodore 64. It retails for 179 And looking it up, it seems like it only was sold in any number in Japan. And the Commodore 64 is what was sold here. And it mentions the 64 here, retailing for 595 Commodore also talked about the BX256 16-bit microprocessor machine. It's obviously a professional system retailing for $3,000. And they have their B128 machine, which is a Z80 machine for CPM use at $1,695. And then it mentions the P128, which is another in the PET series. But this one, instead of having the built-in monitor, has connections for a TV or, or monitor outside, and you know, an external device. There's a Lobo personal computer, the Max 80, which can either run CPM or TRS-DOS. 
There's another professional system called the Altos. Looks like it's an 8086-based system with 512K of RAM and 20-meg hard drive for $12,500. There's a Toshiba T100 personal computer. It looks like it's... The way it's displayed here, the picture is kind of, I don't know, unclear, fuzzy from the reproduction here on uh, Internet Archive. But it almost looks like it's a computer set in, like, a briefcase, and the briefcase opens up. And there's a keyboard on one side and then, like, the, an LCD, little LCD monitor and some speakers on the other upper side. But looking it up, it looks like this is just a, some specialized case for it because the computer itself is in the style of one of those grid systems kind of machines where it's got an LCD screen that kind of folds over the keyboard. But it is a portable. There's the NEC PC6000, which is kind of a breadbox-shaped machine that attaches to a regular TV and has a Z80 processor and 16K of RAM. There's the Sony SMC70, another Z80 system, another kind of breadbox machine. Then we get the CompuThink Hawk, which is a 68,000 machine. No price on it, but it runs Unix and a whole bunch of stuff, so I'm assuming it's super expensive. There's a little handheld computer that looks, says jointly developed by Frenzami Inc. and Matsushita Corporation, which is a little handheld 6502 system, and it's, it's small. it looks like a wide calculator. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't have actual dimensions, but it looks like it's small. I looked it up, and it looks like it's about 250 millimeters by 100 millimeters, weighing half a kilogram. It's better known as the name uh, the Panasonic HHC for handheld computer, perhaps? It said it had an LCD graphical display of 159 by 8, so one line and 26 characters. It could be connected to a TV and then display 32 by 16 characters in text mode, and apparently had a few graphics modes as well. Then he lists a bunch of printers that he saw, some displays. I remember Amdeck RGB monitors. Those were common in our computer lab at school for Apple II and Apple III. And they talk about some disk drives. There's some 3-inch floppy disk drives, which I don't think are the same as the 3.5-inch. Oh, and then there is some 3.5-inch as well. And I think that's the kind from Sony. I think that's the kind that we ended up getting on the later systems. One of the rare Atari mentions here is the Axlon RAM disk. This is a 128K version for the Atari Later, I thought they had a 320K version. They do mention there's an Apple product that's a 320K RAM disk, but for the Atari, they said it's compatible with Atari DOS 2.0S and can be used as like an extra sort of, yeah, obviously disk drive that's based in RAM. The company Track is mentioned here. I had a Track drive for my Atari. I mean, I still have it. It's broken. The power supply or something is not working. But here they don't mention the Atari version. They only mention Apple, IBM, TRS-80, Zenith, and the S100. There's a section on software, and for Atari, the Atari booth showed Speed Reading, Music Tutor 1, Juggles House, and Juggles Rainbow, the Communicator 2, which was a kit that included a modem and the Telelink 2 cartridge. The Atari A35 Direct Connect modem was the one that plugged in right to the phone line, not the acoustic modem, and that was available for $279. The Telelink 2 by itself was $79. And that's about all the interesting stuff. Each one of those, after each summary, they would have a you know circle 328 on the reader service card. This reminds me of the Ted Nelson mail project that Kay Savitz helped digitize and placed on the Internet Archive, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. There's an article, Who Really Invented the Video Game? by John Anderson, and this is talking about the development of like extensions to the uses of oscilloscopes. And so this guy named Willie Higginbotham used some electronics to create this little upside-down T on, a, on an oscilloscope screen, as if looking at, like, at a tennis court from the side, and he could bounce this, bounce this ball back and forth. So it talks about kind of how they wired together some electronic components and how to use the oscilloscope to create this display. He developed it while working for the government, but obviously it wasn't something that the government was was willing to like license or get out, and so it was not something he ever made money with. Apparently he worked in World War II on the Manhattan Project and worked with Oppenheimer and others on the bomb itself. He said he was 24 miles from ground zero watching the detonation, and he said he had welder's glasses that were so thick he couldn't see head car headlights through the glasses. 
Then we come to the article Joy Tricks by John Anderson. And the idea is to use the Atari CX40 in one of two ways. One is to make it a left-handed joystick. So you rotate the controller like 90 degrees, change some of the internal wiring connections, and then the fire button is on the right side. And so you can hold the joystick with your left hand. And it shows like which wires to change around to make that connection. And the other is to use the wiring, the pin diagram, and make some arcade-style buttons. So instead of having a joystick, you just have a bunch of buttons, you know, left, right, up, and down, and then the fire button. And it shows two different arrangements you can do that, and shows how you wire them up to the DB9 connector. It also has a little addendum saying that you can add an additional fire button to the top of the joystick by kind of like punching a hole through the end of the stick and then threading the wires through the, the central column. And then at the end of the article, it says if you don't want to do this stuff yourself, it shows a few companies that sell kind of similar modifications in already assembled units. The Starplex controller, a controller from a company called AccuPlay, and a third from KY Enterprises, although that one might be slippery. And there's not much interesting stuff left here in the magazine. There's an article on data structures and searching. There's a pilot to basic translator. There's an article, Animath, which is an Atari like basic listing about this animated math program for addition practice. There's also a 30-line basic program for the Atari for mortgage amortization. There's a column called The Other Side, looking at machines that are available in Europe, and mostly talks about Clive Sinclair and the ZX81. If you like Apple graphics, there's the graph paper by David Lubar. Which this, one, this article talks about page flipping and how to draw on both high-res pages and get them back and forth. And then we come to the section that normally would have the Outpost Atari, but is not available this time. And I don't remember if they mentioned that last issue? I don't recall that, but I'm pretty sure it'll be back, because I remember it coming later. So, in the meantime, we just have William Shatner's mug on the inside back cover, and on the outside is, remember, the elephant floppy ad. Here's Byte, the Small Systems Journal. It's October 1982, Volume 7, Number 10. Two bucks 95 in the US, three bucks 50 in Canada, one pound 85 in the UK... A McGraw-Hill publication. It's 8,472 pages and weighs 14 metric tons. The cover art is another great piece by Robert Tinney. It's a New York City skyline, but it's a really interesting perspective. It's like very foreshortened, but the perspective, the, the vanishing point, is on the very far left of the page. And so the whole left side of skyscrapers of the cityscape is all in shadow. It's very dark. But there's a bright sky in sort of the middle and the mid-distance and up extending up to the top of the screen. And then the opposite side of the street, of the street scene, at the very foreground is a like a light post. This is Wall Street and a building that was sort of reminiscent of, I guess, like the New York Stock Exchange building. I don't know. It's like, well, big columns and sort of ornate kind of roof frescoes. And that's the biggest building that dominates the whole right part of the page. And then as the perspective goes away, the next building is like a TRS-80 looking kind of computer, you know, one of those all-in-ones with the keyboard and the monitor attached. It's kind of lined up on the sidewalk in the same place as the other buildings, but you can only see a portion of the computer because it's sort of hidden by the, the big Wall Street building. And there are other buildings as you go away as the perspective sort of vanishes, but they're more just like standard kind of skyscraper looking things. But the crowds on the street, the people are very small, but there's a, a big crowd gathering in front of the computer. And then in very small text, right at the bottom right corner, it says, in a really hard-to-read black font that really blends into the shadows, it says, Computers and Business. And I really wanted to look at Byte just for this cover, because it's super great. I mean, I, I, I love all of his artwork, and I wish the magazine itself would hold up more <laughs> like the artwork does for me. So to a quick look at the table of contents, it has a lot of business software stuff. Like, it says, there's an article on VisiCalc, uh, there's another article, What Makes Business Programming Hard? Adapting microcomputers to Wall Street as another one. And there's some other non-businessy things, like there's a, something on the Microvox text-to-speech synthesizer. There's the state of industrial robotics. There's Program Your Own Text Editor Part 2, which there must have been a Part 1 in last month's magazine, which I obviously covered in great detail. 
there's a couple articles. Apparently there was a bite game contest because there's a few things that reference the fifth and sixth place winners of this contest. The fifth place was a game called Ring Quest for the Apple II, and the sixth place was called Marketplace for the TRS-80. So I guess I'll keep an eye on that and see if any Atari games show up in this list. I'm going to briefly cover an article of a program called TK Solver, and that's about all we'll look at in this magazine. So this is not an Atari program, this TK Solver, but I remember having it in, or having it available anyway in the um, computer lab of the engineering department. It was an algebraic equation manipulation solver. So it could manipulate the symbols of an algebraic equation to simplify it and then generate solutions or graph it and present results in an algebraic manner. And then it could also be used as like a way to generate solutions numerically if it could not solve them algebraically. But the idea a computer could manipulate algebraic uh, symbols and come up with solutions was pretty innovative. One of the examples they use in the article is like, if you have the equation A plus B equals C plus D, and you want to solve for D, it knows how to convert that equation into D equals A plus B over C. And then obviously you can get into more advanced stuff, you know, like polynomials and higher order equations, and then transcendental functions, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, this seemed like magic when I used it. And I didn't use it very much, but it was just a, it was an interesting reminder. I'd totally forgotten about this program. And then I saw this review and I was like, oh, I remember that once when I was in high school. I, was, I must have been probably had to be in 10th grade, I guess, because that was the last year I had this course. So I had my Atari and I was super excited about, you know, discovering redefined character sets. And so we were doing this course in symbolic logic and math, which is stuff like, you know, A and B or A implies B. And we get these symbolic logic proofs. And I was all impressed that, you know, I could I could redefine the character set to look like the and symbol, which is kind of like an inverted V, or the implication symbol, which is like an equal sign with a greater sign sort of attached. It's in, in a single character. And I went to the teacher and said, oh, you know, I can I can do this stuff. You know, can I get some extra credit or something that I can, you know, show these on the computer? And the teacher said, well, does it solve the equations? And I was like, oh, pff, no, that's way too hard. I can't do that. And she was like, well, you know, come back when you can solve the equations on the computer. I was super disappointed she could not see the power of the Atari that I could redefine characters. There's not a lot of Atari info in the magazine at all. I found a little snippet here and there. Um, In the news section, they mentioned that they claim, or Atari claimed anyway, to expect to ship like 1.5 million units in 1982, which seems a bit high. I've heard reference that the 8-bit line sold anywhere between 2.5 and 4 million computers. So I think 1.5 million in a single year is, is probably a bit too high. They also mentioned the price competition, and especially from TI having reduced the price of their machine so much that they said prices are going to fall to maybe under $200 in 1983. And they mentioned the Atari 600 is going to be coming out soon, which is basically, they say, a 400 with a standard keyboard. And that's really it for the magazine. There's certainly plenty of Atari references in all the sales ads, but really not much in terms of the articles. Moving on, let's look at the computers and video games for October 1982. 75p for the cover price, 100 pages in the issue, and the cover art is a totally different style than normal. It's in the style of a newspaper. Computers and video games is in kind of like a gothic font at the top, and it's laid out kind of like a front page. There's an article called Space Watch and a picture of a UFO over the Houses of Parliament, and there's text that goes along with that story. It says, Following the astonishing spate of UFO sightings, the government has set up a special agency to investigate the possibility that an alien invasion is already taking place. The new agency, which is to be stationed at a top-secret base in Potter's Bar, Hertfordshire, will be codenamed Space Watch, and its charter is currently being drafted out by Whitehall. A buddy of mine named Justin used to live in Hertfordshire and uh, drove right by Potter's Bar on the M25 and never saw any evidence of aliens there. I'm thinking this cover might be a parody. And there's a bunch more text in that. And then there, there's a few other articles on the front page here. Galaxian Colony 2 by our science correspondent, who, in a spoiler alert, turns out to be my good friend Neil from Scotland. 
says a colony of creatures from another galaxy are approaching Earth in a warlike formation, according to a report in the science journal Witch Cosmos. And some more text and then finishes off. He has done most of his work on an Apple computer using alien calc software and a study of TV crisp and instant potato commercials. Note that Neil said he did not write that text, so somebody from the magazine did. Toward the bottom of the quote-unquote front page is a new alien panic in wild strawberry patch. So the Wilshire Market Gardener says he has killed an alien being in his wild strawberry patch. During the fight, the alien fell into a hole he had previously dug in an area of his allotments overrun by wild strawberries. He said, I was out in the apple orchard inputting size readings into my Atari microcomputer when the scarlet horror leapt at me from behind the compost heap. Grabbing the nearby shovel, I fought back, chasing it into the greenhouse complex. And so, yeah, this is an Atari game. And one I heard from an Atari Age user named Dr. Peter that that was a basic type-in game that they liked. I had had a thread on Atari Age asking for type-in games that, that people enjoyed, and this was one that came up. So yeah, we have at least one Atari game to cover in this issue, so let's get to it. But unfortunately, in the table of contents, and it has been a common theme, they don't identify which games belong to which systems. So, I mean, I know Wild Strawberries is in there for the Atari. Galaxian Colony 2 is my friend Neil's game, and that's for the Apple II. But the other games listed don't have any platform called out here in the uh, table of contents. In the editorial section here, there's an article called Software Giants Clash and says, there's a storm brewing in the game software industry which could change the way you buy your discs and cassettes. It says, while CV and VG usually does not involve itself in industry news or comment, this is one story we thought we should tell you about. And it goes on to talk about a legal battle here, meaning the UK. It says, the issue is software copyright and the adversaries are the industry giants Atari and Commodore. First, they talk about an Atari copyright claim against the Liverpool-based software house Bugbite, which has a Pac-Man clone in their VIC-20 that Atari thought was too similar. And then Bugbite was forced to withdraw the software, not because they thought it was infringing copyright, because they did not have the resources to fight Atari, noting that Atari had its massive parent corporation, Warner Brothers. However, they said Commodore does have the resources, and got involved when they threatened to sue Commodore over the VIC-20 game Jelly Monsters. So they note there's no software copyright law in Britain at the moment, although there is in the U.S., they say. And they say both the computer industry and the government feels that software copyright is necessary, and the government is looking to set up committees to figure out the best way to do that. But now that that this test case is here, that may be the motivating force to get copyright law in the U.K. And then so they sort of devolve into their own opinion of stuff, and they say the uh, arguments for copyright law is to protect the innovative game designer and ensure higher quality of game software. But their argument is that names can be copyrighted, but ideas can't. And so the editorial opinion here in CNVG is that the copyright issue does not need to be sorted out over here. So this is the first I've heard of the copyright battle here in the UK, and so I'll be interested to see how this resolves, because I don't actually know how it, how it went in the UK. There are definitely plenty of places to buy Ataris. There's lots of ads that have Ataris, both 400s and 800s. Seems like the price for an 800 with 16K is about 450 pounds, and the 16K 400 is about 200 pounds in most of these ads. In the new game section, there's about 10 games listed, but stuff for the BBC, the ZX81, the Spectrum, Apple II, but nothing listed for the Atari. In the arcade section, they have tips on playing Tempest, as well as a preview of the arcade game Tron. And then we come to the program listings. So there's Space Watch, is that game mentioned on the front cover of the, of the magazine. It's a Spectrum game. And there's a word search game for the ZX81. Mining Colony for the Acorn Atom. And then we have Wild Strawberries. This is, it runs on an Atari with 16K and joysticks. So I fired this up and played it. It's uh, kind of a reminiscent of Load Runner. We've got these levels and then ladders connect the levels. And the first level starts with one wild strawberry alien on the top and you're on the bottom. And you've got to dig a hole through one of the levels so that the strawberry falls in it. And then you do another dig and then it causes the strawberry to fall to its death. 
The instructions say the gardener must push them through the holes that they so they fall to the bottom level, but you just have to really you just have to drop them one level and then they'll they'll get killed. You don't have to dig like a tunnel all the way through. I thought you had to walk over them, and the wild strawberries only stay in the hole. It says for a couple seconds, but really it's like less than a second. It just like pops and then it pops back out, and so I couldn't get past the first level for the longest time. And finally, I realized if you just it won't let the game won't let you fall through the hole. So if you just keep pressing the joystick in the direction of the hole and keep holding the button down for digging, then as soon as the strawberry falls in, you immediately dig and then causes that strawberry to fall. And yeah, it's an amusing little game. It it slows down considerably. So each level as you go on, it adds another strawberry. And then at one strawberry, the strawberry moves pretty fast and it's almost a little bit too fast. At two, it slows down noticeably and it's almost the right speed, maybe even slightly slow. But at three, it gets really slow. And that's as far as I got. So I don't know if it keeps adding to four and five or more strawberries, but it clearly lags a lot once you get more than one. And it looks like it's using graphics characters, not player missiles to do all the drawing because you just move one character cell each time. And so does the strawberry. So the basic listing is included here. It looks like it's not quite 200 lines of code or so. It's on two columns, but very, very tiny print. But obviously, it's also available other places, and so I downloaded it from Atari Mania, and I'll include a link there in the show notes. Next, we come to a game called Kamikaze that runs on a 6K pet. And then we come to Galaxian Colony 2 by my friend Neil. So this runs on a 48K Apple II, which I was initially surprised at because I I know Neil with uh, BBC Micro. But he said he wrote it when he was in secondary school, which is for the U.S. people, it's like our high school using the school's computers, and that he and his friends there had fun playing it and other games that they made up, because they had no other games to play on their school's Apple IIs. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find the game anywhere on the Apple II archive sites, and Neil said he does not have an electronic copy. He said there may be the possibility of a Apple II floppy languishing somewhere, but for the moment, we'll rely on his description of the game. It's about 150 lines of integer basic. And in the magazine itself, it's kind of chopped up into a bunch of different sections. I get laid against the background of like these alien starships sort of fighting over the surface of a planet. The text of the article says, Message to Earth Defense Command, Priority One. A new breed of Galaxians are invading Earth space. It appears they are attempting to colonize this planet. They must be stopped at all costs. Alert defense forces immediately. Defense spelled D-E-F-E-N-C-E. The only way pilots can destroy these aliens is to collide with them, but our intelligence service reports that these aliens transform at random into construction units on entering Earth's atmosphere. Collision with an alien after it has transformed will prove fatal. These aliens must not be allowed to penetrate Earth's defenses. The outcome of a landing even by one of the attacking force could be disastrous for mankind. I repeat, they must be stopped at all costs. And Neil describes the game as a 2D array mapped on the screen, although you can't see the, the grid cells. And he says an enemy would show up in one of these cells, and your ship goes in one of these cells from left to right across the screen, and then you wrap around to the other side. And it says you move the ship up and down in order to collide with the enemy. But you have only a certain amount of time to do this, and if you miss that time, it turns into a circle filling the cell that then can't be destroyed. And either after this timeout or after you kill one of the aliens, another alien will appear. So alien appears somewhere else, and then you move your ship to avoid the pods that will destroy your ship, but you have to collide with the other enemies. So as you go on, the sort of the, the timeout decreases, and so you have less and less time to kill the aliens, and eventually you, yeah, crash into one of the pods and die. So I hope at some point to get a copy of this and then play it. It's, yeah, it's cool to know that, like, I'm friends with a published author. It was always my dream to get a game published in a magazine, and Neil actually had three, so we'll see more games of his in the future. There's a VIC-20 game after that, and there's a game for the TI-99-4A that's maybe the first that I've seen in this magazine. And there's a game for the Sharp MZ-80, requires 14K. 
And there's a BBC game. And then we come to the section of articles about programming stuff. So there's some basic programming techniques in its practical programming section. And there's some larger reviews, but none for the Atari. They have a section of the Game Player's Guide to the TI-994A. And subsequent to that, an ad for the TI-994A, but not using Bill Cosby as the spokesperson. And I don't know if Bill Cosby was not known in the UK, but it's just some generic guy in a, well, generic to me, maybe it's known to somebody in the UK, just a guy with a beard and a tie and a vest and pants, obviously. Or should I say trousers? Wow, this just took a turn. And fortunately, that's about the end of the magazine, so we'll leave it there. Let's look at Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. This is the October 1982 issue, number 51. U.S. Canada edition is two bucks fifty. The international edition is two bucks ninety-five, and the United Kingdom edition is two pound. There are 112 pages in this issue. On the cover, in its usual style, looking out from the monitor over the keyboard, there's some students in a classroom, and it says the turtle is the teacher. And there's a little what nine-pointed star, looking like it was drawn with the logo. It says the education feature, pet screen utilities, equation plotting with the apple and Atari programming techniques. So nice. We'll check that out. A few pages right before the table of contents, they have the October highlights, and they list like the education feature, and then they have stuff for each system that they're going to cover. So they have some Commodore stuff, Apple 6809. Then they have the Atari feature saying there is an Atari basic subroutine for flexible formatting of numerical data, and then the start of a three-part series using character graphics to mimic some of the capabilities of memory-consuming high-resolution modes. So we'll look at those. Yeah, hitting the table of contents, those are the only two Atari things mentioned. The education feature shows articles about Turtle Graphics and Apple Pascal, Apple Logo, and a few articles about using the microcomputer in your classroom. There's a hardware section about building a parallel printer interface and using an IBM Selectric as a printer for your OSI system. So if any of that sounds interesting, I'll leave that as an exercise to the reader or listener. So really, I'm just going to look at the two Atari things, the formatted output with Atari BASIC and the Atari character graphics from BASIC Part 1. The formatted output with Atari BASIC columns by Frank Roberts. So it simulates something called a print using command that it says is available in other BASICs. So it seems like it's a subroutine that is using, or is converting integer values to sort of currency style, like two-digit uh, places after the decimal point. So basically you place asterisks for the number of spaces you want to the left of the decimal point, and then put a, a, the period, and then it'll put two digits after the decimal point. So it'll convert like floating point numbers to essentially currency style. But that way, you know, all the decimal points are all nicely lined up, and your output looks more neat and columnar. The other Atari article is more interesting to a games programming mindset, like I would have been. It's Atari Character Graphics from Basic Part 1 by Paul S. Swanson. And it talks about the advantages of using character set animation versus the whole high-res screen, or, you know, 7 Plus or one of the other modes. just requires much less memory, but you do have to sort of manipulate the character set yourself. And so it goes through some of that, how to copy characters from ROM to RAM, how to create a new character, how to animate by changing the value that's printed to the screen at a certain point. And it includes a couple basic examples, one to copy the character set and one to, to actually animate one of these characters. He says one of the best examples of character graphics can be seen in Eastern Front and then talks about, in addition to remapping the characters, that it also uses scrolling. And then he teases the next article, part two, will tackle several, several issues, fine scrolling, display list, and how to animate characters and have them move around the screen. So that's part two. And then it also says a new Atari column begins next month by the same author. And so I don't know if they mean that this part two will be the new column or if there will be an additional column along with this continuing series of uh, articles. So I guess we'll see. And there's not much else of interest. They, near the end, it says uh, next month in micro and it has a bunch of stuff that will be interesting. It says number shuffle on the Atari. 
a computer version of the popular game Magic Square. They have an Atari decoder ring, which is a polyalphabetic substitution cipher, and it promises articles on Atari character graphics and extra colors for the Atari. And the final magazine of this episode is Softside. It's issue number 34. It's volume 6, number 1, although you wouldn't know it from the cover. That only says it on the sort of the masthead inside of the table of contents, but I can let you in on that little secret right here. $3 on the cover price, 120 pages in the issue, and it says Softside now for the IBM PC too. Like, gosh, dang it, just as when I was getting to like Softside. The cover says Microcomputers, the sound of the future. And the cover art is quite sort of simple, but it's hard to describe. It's hard to describe well, anyway. There's a, on the bottom of the cover is like a piano keyboard, and that covers the bottom probably fifth of the page. And then right above that is a magenta like computer keyboard, slightly smaller. And then above that is a red musical staff with musical notes, even smaller than that. And above that is like a yellow grid. And so by now we're up to about the top third of the page. So the, the remaining third of the page up top are these vertical lines. At the center, it's a really bright white line. And moving towards the outer edges of the page, sort of symmetrically, the bands turn from, these vertical bands turn from yellow to orange as they get bigger, and then to red, and then purple and blue, finally at the outer edges. Okay, so your assignment is to draw that, as I've described it, post a picture of it to Twitter, and then we'll compare later on after we get all the entries in. So good luck! The table of contents, the features section has the Entertainment Tomorrow article that we'll talk about. It teases, imagine carrying in the computer the size of a paperback book containing the capabilities of a Library of Congress. It's not that far away. I would agree. And there's what looks like to be the feature article from Whence We Came, Music from the Machine, where it says it's going to look back at the fascinating world of mechanical musical instruments and their startling similarities to programming computer music. And then on the Atari side, it says the featured bit is the Rotberg synthesizer. That's on the disc version. So it says, the first general release of the synthesizer that's been delighting user groups for some time. Sit back and let your Atari entertain you. So that's the disc version. And articles on the Pokey Player, which looks like it might be competing with the Rawberg synthesizer. It says, one of the most powerful music programs we've ever seen in software. And there's an article about exploring the Atari Frontier, which is about building display lists. There's Atari Sound and Graphics, some reviews. And then, of course, we have the TRS-80 side, the Apple side, and the unfortunately new PC side, which we will gleefully skip. In the letters to the editor, one person mails in to say, I have Atari Microsoft Basic, and I'm hungering for programs to type. And then says, I have a suggestion, double the programs in your magazine and triple your price. I know I and others would pay anything for SoftSide. And maybe zero number of others, I'm not sure. The reply completely ignores the size of the magazine question, but says that they do plan to cover the differences between Atari Basic and Microsoft Basic in an upcoming installment of Exploring the Atari Frontier. In the Entertainment Tomorrow section by Alan L. Wold, it talks about ebooks essentially. And it's a mix of sort of like pie-in-the-sky speculation with how would this be accomplished with current technology. There's a paragraph where he says, Though the technology is not yet here, it's coming fast. Various forms of flat screens are rapidly being developed. For our computerized book, we'll need something like about 4 inches by 7 inches, the size of a paperback. It should be thin enough that when closed, it will be no more than about an inch and a half thick. When the computer book is open, one side will be the screen, and the other will contain a few control buttons. And he sort of imagines the control buttons, and he has like a list of buttons that he thinks will be necessary. But the idea of a, a touchscreen interface is not imagined here. He goes over kind of the currently available display technologies, saying some of the possibilities include light-emitting diodes, electroluminescent displays, gas discharge displays, electrophoretics, whatever that is, electrochromics, magnetic particle displays, and liquid crystal displays. Well, interestingly, I just looked up electrophoretics, and that is essentially e-ink. And I was not aware that e-ink was sort of even, like, theorized back in the 80s. 
Electrochromics are apparently materials that change their opacity or color when a voltage is applied. So he talks more about how the power requirements are going to sort of factor into this and, you know, battery technology and, you know, the high voltages that some of these techniques require, like gas discharge displays, are a big stumbling point, you know, with 80s technology. Another stumbling point is memory, and so he goes over a whole bunch of stuff about what it's going to take to store, you know, like a novel of a couple hundred thousand words. And at this point, sort of solid-state memory is not really a thing. He gets as far as, like, lasers and, you know, optical discs of some sort. But obviously, we knew what it took to get the Kindle and stuff were solid-state memory systems. He mentions it would be possible to use ROM systems, you know, chips. But he goes on to say that one of the advantages of having an ebook is just to have this immense amount of material available. And he says the idea behind the advantage of this is the ease at which you can share digital media versus physical media. And so requiring to get, like, a ROM chip would kind of defeat that purpose. He imagines kind of like books being broadcast over radio waves, as if like a newspaper was doing this or some, you know, broadcast company was doing this. But that's not like an on-demand service. So then he imagines maybe libraries will have some sort of system. But really, even though the technology is not, you know, there now as he described it then, the ideas are really here. And so it's a very, another prescient article from him. The article Music from the Machine by Randall L. Kotzwitz turns out to be an article about the development of the piano, like the you know physical piano, and doesn't really relate much to computers at all. And then we get to the highly skippable PC side section, and followed by the TRS-80 side. Finally, we get to the good stuff, the Atari side, and the first article is the Rotberg Synthesizer, which is pretty much a reprint of the same article we just got in Antic. And the editor's note says that it's uh, reprinted with permission. So it's the same article, but the software is on disk, and so it's actually on the flip side of the disk, and it says it's copy protected. So apparently you're given license to use the synthesizer, but not to know anything more about it than the internals described in the article. And also included are five songs, New Country, Prelude and Fugue in C minor, Bolero, which it notes is unfinished, Pokey Percussion, and Disco Dirge. So this then will be contrasted with the Pokey Player, which says is an editor and compiler for music by Craig Chamberlain and Harry Bratt, and it says it's a music playing utility that's designed to allow full access to the wide variety of sounds presented by the Pokechip. It's interesting in that it combines two of the voices into make a 16-bit voice, but then leaves the other two voices as 8-bit voices. So it's got like a primary channel and two secondary channels, the primary channel having more resolution uh, frequency-wise, and the other two channels having the normal 8-bit accuracy. The article describes the three steps to their process, as they say. The editor is the bulk of the article, where it shows the user interface, and there's a screenshot as well. And it's mostly a joystick-controlled system, so you use the joystick to select notes and duration of notes, and then how the notes are blended together. And then once your composition is created, you can then go back and compile it using the second part of their process, and then play it using the player, the third part of their process. The editor program is the most lengthy. It is many hundreds of lines. It's in 12 columns spread over five pages. The compiler is four columns over two pages, or about 150 lines. And then the player is on only a single page, but it's largely machine language. It's, it's in data statements. And the idea is that you use the compiler to generate the basic data statements that then you append to the player. And then when you run that whole thing, the player program pokes all the data statements into memory that are part of the machine code and then uses the data from the compiled music as the source for the machine player to then play the music. So clearly there's some encoding that they use for the player, but that's not described here. Nor is there a listing of the machine language source code. So it's undocumented actually as to how the music format is is set up. The next article is Exploring the Atari Frontier, Antic in the Display List, Part 3, by Alan J. Zett. And this is continuing the discussion of the display list. And this is from a basic perspective, so all the little demo programs are in basic. 
And the focus of this article is mixing display modes. And the example this time is mixing graphic zero, so six lines of graphic zero, and then the rest of the screen, or the bulk of the rest of the screen is graphic seven, and then a couple lines at the bottom of graphic zero again. The basic demo program then uses the color, plot, and draw to commands on the graphic seven portion of the screen. And he's able to do this by messing with some of the zero page addresses that basic uses to know where to draw in memory. So before he plots to the graphic seven screen, he pokes the start of the graphic seven screen as the start of the graphics memory. And so then the plot commands will work correctly. So that's a neat little trick. And another trick, he says you can use the color and plot commands to actually draw characters on the text portion of the screen. So you set the color to the ASCII character to use, and then plot XY will plot that character in that location. Oh, it seems to me you'd need to use the internal character, not the ASCII character, or a TASCII. And pause while I try that out. All right, well, it's inconclusive. I'm trying this in graphics zero, and it doesn't work at all because you can't plot in graphics zero. And trying it in graphics one, you know, because you're only using 64 out of the possible 128 characters, I'm not sure if it's giving me internal or ASCII or, or what. So rather than stating a conclusion, I will let somebody correct me. Next is a review of a book, Atari Sound and Graphics. The book is by Herb Moore, Judy Lower, and Bob Albrecht. 234 pages, paperback, suggested retail price of $9.95. Reviewed by Sheldon Lehman. It calls itself a self-teaching guide, and it's an introduction to BASIC and then the sound and graphics capabilities of the Atari. The reviewer says, It covers a lot of territory, and this guide should not be mistaken for a comprehensive treatment. However, for the beginner, it serves as an excellent introduction to the graphics and sound capabilities of the Atari computers, and through them, to basic programming in general. And the last item in the Atari side is a review of the Advanced Music System by Lee Actor. This is available from APX, requires 32K RAM and the basic language cartridge, and a disk drive. Retail price of $29.95, and reviewed by Craig Chamberlain. So the first part of the review kind of summarizes the pokey and how it generates sound. And then the second part of the review talks about the program itself. And this is not Advanced Music System 2. This is the first one. And so this is a a keyboard entry system where the notes are entered by a combination of a key press with the name of the note, you know, A through G, and then other stuff with the sharp or flat or the octave number, and then the duration. And this is after you enter stuff, there's a staff that shows the musical notes that you've just entered. And apparently you enter the voices independently, and then you can play either one or more of the voices at the same time. It seems like you have to enter one measure at a time. It's, it looks like the unit of grouping is our measures. The reviewer notes that the documentation is excellent, very complete, over 30 pages, and recommends the software. And But then, interestingly, has a footnote that says Advanced Music System 2 is going to be released in 1983, and that the new version will be written entirely in assembly language. So it seems like he's hedging his bets a little bit. He says he likes the advanced music system as is well enough to use it, but he's really looking forward to the additional speed and features available in the advanced music system too. One of his complaints of this advanced music system was that because it was written in basic, it couldn't keep track sometimes of the all the notes that he was entering because he was typing too fast. And so he thinks that will be eliminated. That problem will be eliminated in the new version. That's it for the Atari side. Skip over the Apple side. Nothing Atari related in the like new products section. And we close out the magazine with an ad for Crypt of the Undead by Mark Benioff and Epic Software on the inside back cover and then Elephant Floppy Disks on the back cover. And now it's time for Mike's letter to the editor. I find it disturbing to read in such a fine publication as Byte technically incompetent, if not deliberately misleading advertising. I refer to the advertisement by Micro Stuff Incorporated on page 121 of the June 1982 Byte. I have seen this advertisement in earlier issues, but assumed it would not appear again. 
In the first place, the headline reads 0.001 second from Wall Street, and the first sentence seems to equate that to a microsecond. If that weren't glaring enough, the people at MicroStuff have also moved western Kansas to within 186 or 0.186 miles of New York City, unless they know of some other Wall Street or have found a data transmission medium faster than light. Steve Hendricks. And that was Mike Whalen, fellow Kansas Fest attendee and host of the Retro Reads podcast, helping me find the funniest or an amusing or, in this case, most unhinged letter to the editor in the magazines of the episode. I haven't really been focusing on letters to the editor too much, but with Mike's help, we'll hopefully identify one that's worth sharing every episode. So, Steve Hendricks, I salute you. I think you totally put bite in their place while also giving them and us a good laugh. How about we take a look at a computer game now? This is Worm War 1. It was based on a 2600 game of the same name by David Lubar, and the conversion to the Atari was done by Tom McWilliams. Ferg reviewed the 2600 version in episode 20 of his Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And he talked quite a bit about David Lubar, so I won't repeat any of that here. But he's active on Twitter and has his website at davidlubar.com if you want to see more of the stuff that he's written for computer stuff. And as well, he's a, an author. He's got a lot of books that he's published. I couldn't find a lot of information on Tom McWilliams, the author of the Atari port, Although a fun little tidbit was, there's a report from Smithsonian Magazine referencing an NBC News interview that was done in 1982 that said Tom McWilliams earned $60,000 from his first game, which was Outpost, for the Apple II. And the giant list of classic video game programmers shows eight credits for him, Outpost on the Apple II, then Turmoil, Alpha Shield, Spider City, Worm War One, and a game called Crosscheck for the 800. And he did a game called Law of the West as a port from the C64 to the Apple II, which must have been interesting, going from the C64's advanced graphics down to the Apple II, you know, do everything yourself. And then it looks like he has an original game called Injured Engine on the C64. Atari Mania shows a couple additional credits for him on the Atari uh, Fast Eddie and Laser Gates, both ports from the 2600. Atari Mania says LaserGates wasn't released individually, but it was part of this three-pack that included Wing War, Quick Step, and LaserGates. And I seem to remember having this pirated, that, that complement of uh, three games. Back to Worm War 1. It was released by Sirius Software in 1982. Although, interestingly, looking at Atari Mania, they have an image of the box art, and it says, Program and Audiovisual Copyright Sirius Software, but Packaging Copyright 1982 Fox Video Games. And the cartridge package is a 20th Century Fox box. It's a Fox box. It's an 8K cartridge, uses joystick controllers, and either one or two players. And the two players can either play cooperatively or competitively. There's nine game options, and there's three options for single player, three options for cooperative play, and three options for two-player competitive play. Unfortunately, there's no manual on Atari Mania, so I'm not exactly sure what the difference is between the three options you know, for each of the groups. So within like the one-player option, there's three sort of modes that you choose by hitting the select key. But it's not super clear what the differences are, and I must say I'm kind of familiar with this because it's just the way it was when I was pirating games. You kind of figure things out as you go. The box art is interesting. It has the title Worm War 1 in kind of sort of bubbly font, where it's all curved and things, and you know, reminiscent of a worm, because there are a picture of two worms on the bottom sort of left-hand side of the cover. One's kind of a red worm, one's a green worm. They're kind of almost intertwined. 
and then they're looking off in the, the distance at a green tank that's coming towards them, presumably, with the cannon like pointing right at them and sort of trailing smoke as if it's been recently fired. And behind the tank is a gas station with like sort of old-timey kind of gas pumps. And behind that is this sort of vaguely Asian building that says Pagoda Gas on it, which makes a little more sense when you read the back of the cartridge box. It says, Worm War One has begun. Hordes of giant worms are descending upon the city of Teriyaki. It is up to you, Master Tank Commander, to skillfully navigate through the ruins and blow away these destructive invaders. Be careful, many a good driver has run out of gas and been wiggled to death under the weight of a giant worm. Good luck, Commander. It wouldn't be the 80s without some cultural appropriation going on here, and so before I move away from the game box and the box art, you know, the idea that they use the city name as Teriyaki, and they have Pagoda Gas on the front in this sort of, like, stylized font where it's, like, uh, imagining, like, ink brushstrokes in Asian lettering. And there's also some, what I assume are fake kanji characters, because I can't imagine that they actually talked to a Japanese person when they were designing this. This is the 80s version of, hey, we're being funny and inclusive rather than realizing they're actually being insulting. So if someone does a remake of this box art, let's hope they come up with some better ideas. A final note on the box, it says complete game instructions inside, but unfortunately Atari Mania does not have them scanned and I couldn't find them anywhere. So it's basically learn by doing. So when you fire up the game, you're sort of, there's no real title screen per se, you're presented with kind of a demo mode where the computer sort of mildly plays the game a little bit. What you see when you look at this screen is there's a bottom line that says Worm War 1 that every few seconds alternates with a line that says Copyright 1982 Serious in yellow text on a gray background. There's like one line of text. And then the remaining of the screen above it is the play field apart from an area right at the top where in this initial like attract mode, it just has select and then one where that's the game variation and it goes from one to nine. And every time you hit the select button, it'll increment that number, and then it wraps around when it gets to 9 back to 1. And it wouldn't be me if I weren't pedantic about something. In all the artwork and the advertising that I've been able to find, it shows Worm War 1, where the 1 is written in a Roman numeral. But this in-game status line shows the 1 as an Arabic numeral 1. Even the 2600 version seems to be the same. The advertising and box art is the Roman numeral, and the in-game is Arabic. I believe this is deeply important, and I'm on the verge of discovering a huge conspiracy. Or perhaps someone just missed a memo. The gameplay consists of a little tank on the bottom of the screen, just above the Worm War 1 logo, that is your avatar. You control it left and right with the joystick, but it's always pinned to the bottom, and so pushing forward or pulling back on the joystick increases or decreases your speed. And you use the fire button to fire projectiles out of, the, out of your tank, and they travel upward on the screen. The screen is scrolling down, and you can never come to a dead stop. You always move very slowly, at least, and then you can speed up so, so it will traverse fairly quickly. There's a border on the side, and then as you get further along, obstacles appear that don't move, but they you have to avoid them, otherwise you take damage. The enemies are these little inchworm-looking things that will appear on the screen in sort of this, almost kind of like an explosion or static effect, where there'll be several places on the screen where this will happen, and then they'll change into a worm, and then they'll start either crawling left or right. Occasionally, one of the things changes into not a worm, but a pagoda, and that is the fuel that you have to drive through. You can also shoot these pagodas instead of driving through them. You won't get any fuel credit, but you will destroy all the worms on the screen. And when I first played this game, I thought everything was supposed to be destroyed, and so I kept shooting those things, not realizing you could drive over them to get more fuel. Your fuel is a two-digit number that decreases from 99, and when it gets to zero, your game is over. You can be killed an arbitrary number of times, you just can't run out of fuel. 
whenever you hit a worm, 10 fuel units will be removed, and your tank will go through this little explosion effect. But the tank will respawn, and then you'll continue where you were. The worms seem to come in waves, so if four worms get spawned, and you miss some of them, and they scroll off the bottom of the screen, they'll reappear off on the top, and so you have to kill all the worms before a new set will respawn, and then a new pagoda would have a chance of appearing. It seems that the pagodas spawn in randomly, like sometimes you'll get a wave that will, will not contain a pagoda, and sometimes they will. Without the instructions, that's about the best I can figure out as to why the pagodas appear sometimes versus other times. If you miss a pagoda, though, and it scrolls off the screen, it doesn't reappear at the top. It then turns into an, another worm that you've got to destroy. There's some number of waves you've got to get through in order for the level to, like, complete. And then once you do that, you get some bonus points based on something? And then you move on to the next difficulty level, which then will, seems to add more obstacles on the screen. Hitting obstacles costs fuel, although not as much fuel as it does when you crash into a worm. I don't think there's a final boss or anything, I just think it keeps going. I didn't get super far, so I can't really tell you what happens other than the first couple levels, really. But it's pretty fun. It's, it seems like it'd be a fun cooperative mode as well. The games for me don't last very long, so it's, you know, it's a nice little pick up and play kind of game. The one annoyance I have is that the shots will sometimes go through the worms. Like, the worms, they have this little inchworm sort of animation, but when they're stretched out all the way, they're only about two pixels high, and it seems like the shots move so fast that they will actually, one animation frame will skip over the area of the short inchworm when it's in its short animation. And so you occasionally you'll fire straight up and it'll miss it. So if the length of the shot, presumably a missile, were longer and sort of overlapped its position every time, I think that would fix that problem. And maybe that's something we could figure out by looking at the code. So how is that for a segue? The first thing I do whenever I look at one of these games is to check out the display list. And I do this in the Atari 800 emulator, just breaking into the debugger and typing dlist. And here's where it gets interesting. The first entry is a mode C line, which is the 160 by 192 two-color mode. So it's kind of like graphics 7 plus, except it's two colors instead of four. And there's 33 of those lines, but it's followed by 240 blank lines, and then 144 blank lines, and then a DLI, and then five blank lines, and then a DLI, and three blank lines, and it keeps repeating. So now we're up into like four or 500 lines, and most of them are blank, and so I'm a little confused. To unconfuse myself, I fire up Omnivore and look at the emulator, and I see that we are dealing with a kernel. This is a 2600-style game, where it takes direct control of writing all the graphics to the screen. It does not use Antic, it doesn't use a display list, it is writing stuff to the screen as it goes. And this is strange, I've never actually looked at a kernel before. I mean, I sort of understand how they work. I understand it a little bit better on the 2600, even though I don't know programming on the 2600, but there's a great book I've mentioned many times before, Racing the Beam where Nick Monfort and Ian Bogost go over how to program the 2600 by sort of stepping through a bunch of games. I've always recognized that the 800 could be programmed this way, but I've never actually looked at it until now. So basically what it looks, what it's doing is there's no uh, DMA being stolen by Antic at all because Antic is turned off. So you have all 114 cycles available each scan line. And for the first 35, 36 scan lines, all it's doing is loading the V-count register and checking to see if it's the right time to start doing stuff. And then when it, once it hits scan line 36, it begins sort of the game logic, and it looks like what it's doing for the first you know, 10 scan lines, 12 scan lines or so, is dealing with the score. Now, since Antic is off, there's no way to get anything to the screen except using the player missile objects. 
But since you're not using Antic, you can't actually use the memory that would be set aside for the players and missiles to sort of do everything automatically. You've got to write graphics yourself. Do that is through the five registers that control each of the graphic images for the four players plus the one extra 8-bit object that we have, which is the, the four missiles. So using these five player objects, we have five times eight is 40. So we have 40 bits that we can use for graphics. Of course, you can use the size registers to expand each bit and you know, make it cover more of the screen. But without reusing players on the same line, all you can do is 40 bits worth of graphics on any scan line. Now, I suspect they are reusing players on scan lines, but at this point, I'm not sure. So we'll take a look. For the score, they don't really need to because there's just not that much information that they're displaying. During the attract mode, which doubles as the game selection screen, on the very top it says select and then the digit of the game mode. Now I've switched into Omnivore and I'm looking at the emulator that I have in there. And I've paused it on a frame and looking back at the instruction history. So the way the Omnivore emulator works is it lists the scan line and the X position, sort of the color clock position. And you can track what instructions were executed at the start of that line. So for the first 36 scan lines, it's just checking the V count until it gets to the number that it wants. And then it starts using the WSync operation in order to sync to a scan line. Looks like it does a little housekeeping for a couple scan lines and then starts setting the horizontal position of players 1 through 4, which it is going to use to draw the select and then the digit for the game variation. And those positions are not going to change as it draws the you know that whole block of text. Setting the horizontal positions takes less than a scan line, and then it does a WSync, and then it starts to draw. So what it does is it has the bitmap for select, the six letters of select, that's spread out over three players. So, you know, two letters per player. So it's a three pixel wide character. It uses a simple loop to copy each one of those on the scan line. So, you know, for whatever horizontal position it's in currently, it copies that value into the player register, which then gets written out to the screen at the horizontal position that was set earlier. And then when it gets to the digit, it calculates what digit it needs to display, and it sticks that into a zero-page variable, and then uses an indirect addressing mode to load the value it needs to display at that particular scan line for that digit. So that seems pretty straightforward. It's not, you know, they're not having to mess around with, like, positioning the player, like, at arbitrary positions. You know, these are, like, fixed positions for all this stuff. And so that takes, what, five, six scan lines. And there's another similar thing for the score. That's another six scan lines high. And then we get done with that, and we're into the play field itself. So this is where stuff then starts to change in response to the gameplay. Let me describe the playfield a little bit. Initially, if you start at the like normal gameplay modes, mode one, the playfield is blank. The middle of the playfield is blank. There's a border that is shown on the left and right that sort of shows your limits. You know, you can't go left of, of the left border and can't go right of the right border. But mostly the playfield is blank and your little worms appear in the middle, kind of you know, moving to the left and right. And then your tank can move left and right to shoot those. As you get further in the game, then obstacles appear and start scrolling down with the playfield. And these obstacles are, are blocks. They're rectangles. You know, there's no intricate detail or anything. It's just simple rectangles. They're taller than they are wide. The playfield itself is about 120 lines, maybe. I could probably find that out exactly, actually. Yeah, so I was close. It starts at about scan line 60 and ends at about scan line 196. Might be off by one here or there. So that's about 145 lines. And the reason I can tell where the playfield ends is because I can see where the background color changes for the bottom sort of title bar where it says Worm War 1. And so I can see that on line 200, it says a store in callback, C-O-L-B-K, which is the background color register. And then a few lines previous, there's three W-Syncs in a row. So that leads me to believe that, that 196 or 197 is kind of the last bit of the playfield that's actually used for players. 
So if we then skip back up and look to scan line 60 or so, what it looks like is happening is that players 2 and 3 are set to their widest, you know, quadruple width, which means 4 color clocks wide. So, you know, a color clock, again, is like a graphic 7 pixel in, in width. So 2 graphics, 8 pixels. So that's the widest that an individual bit of a player can be, is 4 color clocks wide. That is the same width as a graphic zero character. So, you know, you can get 40 uh, graphic zero characters across the screen. So when the players are set to be this wide, that means each bit of a player can cover the same as one character on a graphic zero screen. So all five players, if they were stretched out using quadruple width, could then span the width of a normal screen. Here, what looks like is happening is it's a, it's a narrower width screen. So it's not all 40 graphic zero characters. It looks like it might just be 32. Because he's using two players, player two and player three, to draw all the obstacles that appear on the scrolling part portion of the screen. And it looks like the obstacles start on scanline 64. Because at the end of scanline 63, he sets the player position for player two at 3F and the player for player three at 5F. So that's going to handle the first, so the left half of the screen. Then he does a W-sync and then starts writing data for those players using the graph P2 and graph P3 registers. By loading them early in the scan line, that's before the GTI gets to drawing that, so they will be in place as the scan line goes across the screen. And then as enough time passes, there's some instructions thrown in there for timing. I don't know exactly know what they do yet, but he repositions player two and player three to the right side of the screen before the scan line reaches the middle of the screen, but after the data has been drawn for the left half of the screen. In this case, it looks like he doesn't change the values, and so when he repositions it to the right-hand side, the same data is drawn again. So it looks like this is a copy at this particular instance. Further on down the screen, I can see that the left and right half sides are not the same, so he must have some logic in there to determine like when to reuse the same data. Additionally, it looks like he's got a, a he's using a third player that's not being repositioned. So maybe that's the center column. Maybe that's how he gets the buffer between the left side and the right side. But no, that can't be right because he's positioning the players, player 2 and player 3, at 3F, 5F for the left side, and then 7F and 9F for the right side. So those, there's no gap between those. If the players are at quadruple width, that's 4 color clocks per bit and 8 bits. 4 times 8 is the same as 2 times 16, which is 20 hex. So yeah, there's no gap between there. So this player, this additional player he's writing data to, uh, okay, I see what's going on. He is using D00F and D010. So that's the background. That's players two and three. That's the background. And he's actually writing data to player zero and player one all the time, it looks like. And player zero and player one must be your tank and the worms. So let's see if we can figure that out. And let me step back again and, and describe a little bit more about the background, the scrolling background. It's broken up into seven groups of about 20 scan lines. The background color, you know, that's made up of these blocks changes as uh, as it scrolls, and so it looks like it's the same luminance, but it changes color. So after every, you know, group of 20 scan lines, the background color and the blocks, not the background color, sorry, the block color changes. The background color is always black, but the color of the blocks, the color of the objects that you're trying to avoid as you're driving through this quote-unquote city changes. So, it, you know, just gives a little bit of extra color, which is, you know, what the Atari is good for when you can break stuff up in, um, you know, blocks of scan lines. But between each of these 20 scanline high sections, there's a, looks like two scanlines of black. And looking at the code, there's a place where there isn't a W-sync for one of those scanlines. So he uses like two whole scanlines worth of stuff to do some, looks like housekeeping of, of sorts to set up the next block. You know, where the, if a new worm were to appear, it looks like that's where he sets up the index variables that he uses to draw the worms. 
And I can now say that he uses player 0 for the worm and player 1 for your tank. Because I can see where he's loading the graphics for player 1 is at BE00, X using the X index addressing mode. And BE00 to BEFF is the section or the range of data that includes the graphic for the tank and the graphic for the tank's explosion. Alright, I think I have enough of an idea that I can kind of summarize what I think is going on. So in drawing the playfield, there's like seven groups of 20 scan lines. And two of those 20 scan lines are used to kind of set up the worm and tank positions for that group. And then the next like 18 scan lines in like true kernel fashion doesn't do any branching or anything. It is the same stuff. And so it writes to the player registers, regardless if there's any player there or not. Like it writes to the player one the entire time, you know, just writes zeros if, you know, it's above the range of where your tank is. But it doesn't check if anything if it's supposed to be in the, you know, the bottom section where your tank lives. It just writes zeros anyway. You know, it writes data for the worms, even if the worm's not there. So it must position them off screen. I guess it doesn't really matter because it wouldn't register a collision if it's zero data. So yeah, so I guess this is just an example of how a kernel works, is there's not much branching, certainly not on conditions, you know, depending on what is going on in terms of, you know, where to position players and stuff. There are a few branches, but it's probably to different sections of code that have the same number of instructions, or at least the same number of, of clock cycles. This is all very, very different from normal programming on the 8 bits. A programmer with experience on the 2600 would probably immediately see what's going on. And for me, this is all new. It's interesting. I don't know that I'd want to program like this, given that we have, you know, other techniques to use on the 8-bits. And I think you are, like, very limited. Obviously, you can't, there's no other way to draw on the screen except using the players and repositioning players. So you lose all the advantages of, of display lists. The advantages, of course, you have all the cycles to use, but then that limits you in the amount of, like, graphics that you, you can present. So this was an interesting excursion into a style of programming that I didn't know anything about, on the 8-bits anyway. You know, I've read about it on the 2600, and I've sort of seen examples, but I've never tried to step through it and figure out what was going on. This game is is very simplistic in that it seems to lend itself very well to this kind of programming. You know, everything's very line-oriented. The worms only go left and right, and so there's no worrying about, you know, crossing over other things or having to multiplex players. Although, having said that, in the two-player mode, the tanks for, you know, player one and player two are multiplexed in the sense that one frame the tank is drawn for player one, and the next frame the tank is drawn for player two. So it's very flickery. I wanted to figure out how missiles worked. I'm assuming that it has, you actually use one of the missiles, but I don't see where data is being stored to D011, which is the graph M register. And this is where Omnivore is starting to let me down a little bit and that I don't have good searching capability yet. So I think that'll be an exercise for another day as my brain is kind of filling up with kernels. So I think we'll bid Worm War 1 farewell. I'm glad I looked at it. It's, you know, certainly interesting. I didn't really expect it to be a, a kernel game. And now knowing that it is, I think I will probably have a better idea what to look out for. And going forward in the podcast, I doubt I'll cover any more kernel games. Just that I, because I think you just can't get into the sophistication that you need, you know, here in 1982, going into 1983, that are going to be interesting to the consumer. I think you really got to be using some of the advanced Atari features in order to make a competitive game at this stage of the market. The 2600 actually has some advantages over the 800 doing these kernel style games because you can repeat players and they have the, um, I, forget, I think they call it the play field, where's a few bits that they can, that you can set and it'll be drawn automatically. But because you can't generate any playfield graphics on the 8-bits without using Antic, you know, it's really, it's much more limited, actually, than the 2600 if you're going to do a kernel-style game. 
And so that's when I say, you know, 8-bit games need to be more sophisticated. In order to do that, they need to use the Antic because there's just not enough ways to generate playfield graphics on the 8-bits without using Antic. Anyway, as far as Worm War 1 goes, it's a fun little pick-up-and-play game, though, if you haven't tried it, and I suggest you do. And with that, we'll start wrapping up. Only a little bit of feedback to report from last episode. I had talked about Dog Days and wanting to play that game with my kids. And Bill Kendrick wrote on Twitter saying that he didn't want to discourage me at all from playing the game with my kids, but that if I wanted to try out Dog Days as a one-player mode, there was a game called Dog Days Deluxe, also written by Gray Chang. And I'll include a link to Gray Chang's website, taridogdays.com, where he talks a little bit about the game and its differences, and then says that the game was published too late for it to receive any professional reviews, it did not earn any royalties, And in 1984, he distributed the game for free and asked for donations. So he said, This early attempt at shareware marketing was a failure. The only response was a single donation of $5 from a BBS operator. If you have some feedback you'd like to send me, you can at me on Twitter. I'm at Atari8BitGames. Or if you want to have a longer email discussion about why kernels are super awesome, you can email me at feedback at playermissile.com. It just remains for me to thank Steph Animal for allowing me to use her song Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear as the theme to the podcast. And I will see you in some indeterminate time, hopefully soon, where I will talk about the 5200 that's about to be released here at the end of 1982. And I've already picked out the games I'm going to talk about. We're going to look at Kicks, both the original release for the 8-bits and the differences to the 5200 version that was eventually ported to the 8-bits. Again, my goal here is not to compete with the 5200 podcast, but I, as an 8-bit user, am curious to see and really dive into the technical details of what the differences are between the platforms. So that's my goal for the next episode, and you can expect it on my regular schedule.